Hey everybody, Magnus here. You know, had a conversation with a coworker the other day. He's a major Star Trek fan. He loves all things Trek, pretty much. He even likes the uh, new Abrams stuff, but I have to be honest, he's less excited about that than the old stuff. But anyway. So, he was telling me all about Voyager and all that, and it was right around then that I experienced what alcoholics refer to as a moment of clarity. Star Wars is a story. Now, George Lucas thinks it's the rise, fall, and redemption of Darth Vader, but a lot of other people view it as an action trilogy, and it's all about adventure, heroism, friendship, the power of myth, and all that other shit. But no matter how you look at it, Star Wars is a story. It's got a beginning, middle, and end. Sure, there have been attempts to turn it into a general media property, but I think the lack of creative success there kind of speaks for itself. Meanwhile, with Star Trek, you've got tons of stuff to choose from. You've got the original series, The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and everything else. Star Trek isn't a story. Or at least it's not just a story. Star Trek is a concept. You can do shows like Voyager, films like Insurrection, and whatever else is still to come. Star Trek can be a lot of different things and put in several different contexts. You're not necessarily stuck with the original series formula of a crew zipping around on a spaceship in outer space. There are other directions that you can go with the Star Trek concept. But Star Wars is a story. Anything new you try to do with Star Wars is ultimately only going to seem derivative of what's come before. Or maybe it'll just seem like it's too far away from the true spirit of Star Wars, or whatever. Star Wars is a story. Star Trek is a concept. Anyway, there's no real point to any of this. I just felt like throwing it out there to see what comes back to me. Attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. No! Dr. Doom wears body armor to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Yeah. Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I'm sick. But, putting that aside, Superman is my favorite character in all of fiction. Number one, with a bullet. And because of that, I've been talking a lot about Superman lately. Now, 
I usually talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. You see, this isn't an index podcast. I don't focus on just one character, but like I said, it's nothing but Superman right now because I'm nearing the end of my mega series celebrating Superman. My last several episodes have been about shitloads of Superman comics, and I've got really one more to go before this mega series is all finished up. Now, just for clarity's sake, I've done quite a few six-episode miniseries dedicated to a specific topic or theme or idea in the past, but this Superman thing I'm going through right now is probably the most ambitious series I've ever attempted, and I'm burned the fuck out, too, let me tell you. I mean, I know how awesome this mega series has been, and I know how all of you have to change your shorts after each new episode, but... It's really been exhausting to hash through all this stuff. But of all characters, Superman's worth all this work. Understand? Now, it's totally reasonable to ask why I'm going to all this trouble for Superman right now. And I'd have thought it was obvious, but in case it isn't, 2014 is a massively important milestone in Superman's history. You see, this year is Superman's 76th anniversary. Because of that, my opinion is that there's no better way to spend 2014 than talking about Superman. I mean, 76 years. This is important. So it made a lot of sense to me to spend at least a little bit of time during 2014 celebrating Superman's 76th anniversary. You guys understand what I'm saying here? I'll repeat it in case any of you are missing the point. There's no better way to spend the year of 2014. You get that? And there's no better character than to wax fanboy on how fucking awesome Superman is. And it's worth celebrating the fact that this year is Superman's 76th anniversary. So anyway, so that's enough of that stuff. Now, if you've listened to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality for any length of time, you probably know what a pre-crisis Superman junkie I am. I mean, it's hard to get bigger, more epic, or more mythic than Superman through the Silver and Bronze Ages. Everything was massive in those eras. The subject matter for this episode is a sort of love letter to that period in Superman's history. In fact, in a strange way, you could view today's story as an unofficial end to the pre-crisis Superman story if you wanted to. But before I get too far into that, I'd probably better introduce my co-host. Because I've been wanting to cheer like the whole time you're talking. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) And as you can tell, joining me once again is New 52 Adventures of Superman host and Avengers uh, Inspirations host, my friend John M. Wilson. Hello, sir. How you doing? Hello, hello. I'm doing very, very well. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for joining. You know, it's um, I'm going to peel back the curtain a little bit and just uh, say that, you know, your participation in the show grew out of really the fun that I had uh, recording with you on the previous shows. I mean, and of course, now I'm blanking on what exactly. No, there was a there was a shoot the shit episode. Yeah, there's a pile of shit and we took guns out and shot it. Yeah, pretty much. And, uh, man, it it was flying, too. 
And then you were also a. Uh, I still have the taste in the back of my throat. I am so sorry. Well, you know, Listerine can help with that. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Just. Yeah. It's, it's I try, I'll, I'll try that. I'll try that till we're done here. Yeah, we have something to think about. Something to think about. And you're also kind enough to um, accept my invitation to join the um, join in on my uh, 50th episode. Which, you know, you, me, and a bunch of other uh, of our friends basically gang-banged my 50th episode <laughs> and uh, pretty much just left it in the street crying and wondering what the fuck just happened to it. It was a, it was a, great, a great time was had by all. So, anyway. Because and and I was, think that secretly deep down the episode liked it. Uh, well, you know, I, it was – what was it doing in that part of town dressed that way if it wasn't looking for trouble? That's how I, I know. That's how I think of it. So if, yeah. if your headphone port's showing, all bets are off. That's what I'm talking about, you know. But I don't know. Not everybody feels that way. But anyway, so because we had such a great time in the uh, previous two episodes, and because I happen to know that uh, John is a big fan of the pre-crisis Superman, uh, pre-crisis mm-hmm. Superman continuity, just like I am, just that take on the character, it really felt like he was the ideal candidate to jump in and uh, and talk about this with me because it occurred to me that he and I were going to have similar but at the same time kind of complimentary views if that makes any sense about It's also Austin. the fact that I was the only one who showed up to the open casting session so well, I wasn't going to mention that <laughs> because but no yeah I I I do love um I like a lot of the ears of Superman, but I've been doing a lot of reading of Silver Age Superman. It's some good stuff. And I have to say, I've read this story all the way through twice in my life. And the first time was without a lot of that background reading done. And now that I've read a lot of the Silver Age Superman, I'm just seeing so much more that was done in the story. So, yeah, good, great, great chance to come talk about it. Right. And um, and honestly, that's that's actually very much the point of view that I that I actually sort of came at it, too. I mean. When the when this comic book debuted, when was that? It was like two thousand and five or something. Two thousand six. Two thousand six. All right. Well, I was. Well, it went for a year, so maybe it may have gone five to six. I have two thousand six on my. Uh, uh, two thousand six to two thousand seven. Just looked it up, and even into two thousand eight, I guess it went a little bit late. Yeah, to say the very least. Yes, there were months at a time. There was a point when, um, if you were checking things out on uh, Wikipedia, All Star Superman was originally listed as a monthly title. <laughs> and then it became classified as a bi-monthly title. And then they just deleted that section. So that's that's how bad it got. And It's kind of like the Sandman Overture, which was supposed to be bi-monthly, and now I think it's twice a year. Oh, jeez. Wow. It's that bad. Wow. The third issue is supposed to come out right around the anniversary of the first issue. Yep. Oh, my God. Well, well this was a um, – <laughs> I have to tell you, it was a little bit of a disappointment uh, in some ways because – I, when I started reading this book, basically the, the, the big pitch, and this was part of the uh, book's hype, um, and if you hear me honking and quacking and coughing and stuff, well, guys, like I said, I'm sick, so you'll deal. Anyway, but the, a big part of this thing, uh, of the uh, entire All-Star line, really, uh, the big pitch for the All-Star line was that nobody ever really came right out and said so, but it's, I think it was basically intended to be sort of DC's answer to the Ultimate Universe, and... What ended up happening was, for Superman, DC hired Grant Morrison. And for Batman, they hired Frank Miller. And I think what they intended it to be was, like I said, just sort of a a reintroduction in the context of a new continuity for those characters. And then we're off to the races. And at least in Superman's case, what we ended up getting was just 
Grant Morrison and his Valentine to the pre-crisis Superman. And I don't think that's what was necessarily intended, but at the same time, it's freaking Grant Morrison. And so I don't think anybody was necessarily at, from on the editorial side, anyone was going to call him out about it. And so, and it's kind of funny because he has said that he doesn't see it like that. He has said that he doesn't necessarily see it as a love letter to the silver age to him. He's just writing Superman. But I guess if you have a guy who grew up reading comics in the sixties and seventies, and then you give him, tell him to write the ultimate Superman story, the Superman that he wrote up, that he grew up with is the one he's going to be using. So he pulls all these things that we haven't seen in comics in a generation. But to him, this is quintessential Superman. Right. And that's what we get. And it's it's the Silver Age, but it's not because it's definitely a 2006 comic book. Mm -hmm. um, but there is so much that just of the rich and developed universe that Superman had during that era that has found its way into this book that, that I just loved reading about. Right. It, well, I enjoy reading about it now. When this thing was coming out, like I said, it was a disappointment because, number one, I was expecting basically, like I said, a sort of ultimate equivalent for DC, which I okay. then as now thought was you know, kind of long overdue. But the other thing was, especially back then, John Byrne had so completely shaped my sensibilities of who and what Superman was intended to be. Uh, okay. I think you could fairly well say that All-Star Superman was very close to the antithesis of that. And so seeing all, all of this Silver Age stuff in there, it at the time, it, it, it really worked against me. But I think the real kind of turning point in all of that came, oddly enough, not very long after All-Star Superman wrapped. And really two things happened. First, Smallville as a TV show became very pre-crisis driven. I mean, it kind of always had been. Mm -hmm. But then I want to say starting around... Uh, the seventh season of the show, dude went into freaking overdrive with um, the pre-crisis elements that were brought into the show. The other thing that happened, though, was that I was so thirsty for anything new Superman, because at the time, the new stuff that was coming out just wasn't scratching the itch for me. Right. I just decided, you know what, to hell with it. I'm just going to read starting from Superman number 233 up to Superman number 423 and let the chips fall where they may. And this was my first real exposure to the Bronze Age Superman, this epic, like, I think, it was, I think it was like a six or eight month long reading project I undertook. So you didn't read the other titles, you just took the Superman title and read those 200 issues at a go? Pretty much. Is that, okay, cool, cool. What I found was that Superman, and I, I, I do not say this to pick on John Byrne or belittle him or anything like that, because there is some serious freaking creativity driving the Man of Steel miniseries and... In general, his take on Superman. So if you take nothing else away from this, this is not me burn bashing. All right? I, and, also, I, and also the Jurgen stuff and everything else that followed. Oh, yeah. God, that stuff was awesome. It's just me basically appreciating, I guess, sort of a different facet of Superman where, you know, for the first time, I could see where this character, he's not just a fictional character. He's not just a superhero. He is myth in a way that I don't think very many other comic book characters can ever hope to match. And I never really had a full appreciation of that until I started reading those Bronze Age comics. And it, it comes home loud and proud and those Bronze Age issues, and I just fell in love. And ever since then, my, my views of Superman have morphed and changed so far away from what John Byrne introduced. Again, 
not bashing on burn. I'm just saying. But that, just widening the appreciation scope. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I, you know what? To hell with it. I'll go a little bit further with that and say that John Byrne did the right thing at the right time. Hell, if anything, DC waited too long to bring him in. I'm just saying that there is there is a little bit of an argument that he maybe threw the baby out with the bathwater on at least a few things. And I think Superman, to me, works best. That's not to say he works only, but he works best in a sort of pil- uh, pre-crisis sort of milieu. And that all of that, you know, was what, what kind of came rushing back to me on the reread for All-Star Comics when I when I finally did get around to rereading it. I basically I bought the single issues and then when the uh, then I ended up buying the trades. And I, and well, that, I think it, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt your thought. I just I think you had something a really good point there because I think every person you talk to that is a Superman fan or or labels himself as a Superman fan and you point to them <clears throat> something that has come since their fandom mm. started, mm. three words you hear over and over again are, that's not Superman. Yeah. And I think that really started happening with Man of Steel. Because the Superman of the 60s and 70s for, you know, for, that, that's like 20 years, 25 years that character was running. And so whenever that character started getting changed in the mid-80s, and then started getting changed again in the early 2000s, and then repeatedly throughout the whole last 15 years, mm-hmm. and to now we have the new 52 version, over and over again, people are saying that's not Superman. Mm-hmm. So I think the whole idea that he does exist best in a sort of pre-crisis environment, I think there's a lot of credence to that. Because you have to change the character if you take him out of that, and some people don't like the way that he gets changed. Yeah, that's a really good point. Actually, and you know, I feel like there's a separate, there's almost, and this isn't me trying to shush you. I'm just saying that there, I almost feel like there's a separate show in that because I even touched upon it in, um, way back in my Superman Begins uh, miniseries. I couldn't tell you which episode it was, but I basically kicked one episode off saying that I am starting to come to the belief that reboots are actually, in the grander scheme of things, detrimental to the characters. You know, because you, there's this temptation to want to say that we need to find a way to freshen this character up, to liven this character up. And you can say that until you're blue in the face. But to me, Superman is proof that all that really accomplishes is fracturing your fandom. Because kids coming into comics today, assuming there are any, they're, they're going to, kind of by default, they're going to be picking up the new 52 Superman. And to them, anything else is going to be a pretender to the throne. It doesn't matter what my opinion on the matter is. What matters to them is that this is what they know. And so now this this Superman fan, this fellow Superman fan and I disagree on something so crucial and fundamental to the character when under other circumstances we might have, you know, if we'd run into each other in a bar, we might have bought each other beers, you know, but now we're not going to do that. He's my mortal fucking enemy. And... (laughs) Because he doesn't throwing down over whether or not the suit's an armor suit or not. Right, yeah, and and meanwhile, Batman, I don't really think has. To be honest with you, I've not really kept up with Batman. I don't know if Zero Year was actually a full on. uh, Trying to think of the way to put it. Um, Announce not announcement, but 
development of his new 52 origin, if this basically is a, a repudiation of year one or what. But I, but I do think it's kind of telling that Batman, most of his stuff from most of his stories from the 70s and 80s could still be said to be in continuity in some way or another after year one. And he never really had that that uh, scorched earth reboot that Superman did. And that character has really flourished in the past uh, 25, 30 years. And I can't help but think that, I don't know, what are we coming up to now? Almost uh, 40 years since year one, or 30 years, or whatever, however long it's been since year one came out. That has been that character's common starting point for so many people now. I don't think it's an accident that Batman has the fan base that he does in some ways, you know? Mm-hmm. And anyway, so I don't know. They're, maybe that's a completely separate episode, but whatever. I just put I just it try not to encourage Batman fandom. I, I really uh, – <laughs> honestly, <laughs> I really don't either. And in fact, I take it you heard the introduction that I made to this, to this show? Yes. There's a reason for that. There is another <laughs> character I could be celebrating this year that I'm making a de- – Everything that I had scheduled for for that character that I was going to talk about this year has been fucking delayed to 2015 just to piss those people off. <laughs> so, no. You know, guys, I hate to say it. If you like Batman and stuff and all that, I, my apologies. I'm not talking about him again until 2015. So, anyway, there we are, though. So, uh, now that we've alienated what? What do you think? Like uh, half of my listeners now? <laughs> yeah, but not the better half. I'm sorry. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, uh, to get into the uh, the uh, issue, so to speak, at hand, um, basically, uh, you know, uh, if you couldn't have guessed what uh, uh, Wilson and I are here to talk about is Grant Morrison and Frank Whiteley's All Star Superman. And like I said, this is uh, I've I, you know, Grant Morrison can make whatever claims he wants to the contrary that he didn't intend this to be a, a love letter to the pre-crisis Superman. Maybe the fact that he says that, considering, like John just said, what his perception of Superman probably is based on, maybe that's all anyone should need to hear, you know. But anyway, so yeah, well, what you, whether it was intended or not, what you end up is getting is a mature look at the pre-crisis Superman in all of his glory and. We'll see what we get. Yes, yes, we will. Now, originally, I had a a uh, summary typed up and ready to go, and basically, I was going to read all of that, and then John and I were going to dive into it and and uh, basically share our thoughts. But one of the things that kind of occurred to me is that I really don't know how long my voice is going to last here before it gives out. So what I thought we could do is just to kind of spare me the burden of it. This one time I thought I, I could somewhat impose upon my guest and have him read what I what I typed up, and he graciously accepted. So I now pass the baton to, uh, to John. I know you're going to do great with my words, or at least the words I stole off of Wikipedia. <laughs> it's all yours, man. Go for it. All right. Well, the story is All-Star Superman, and the writer is Grant Morrison, and the penciler is Frank Quietly, although I've heard the British people pronounce it quitly, so I'm not sure exactly how that's supposed to be said. Mm-hmm. Um, and the kids are getting snacks out of the snack store in the background, so there's some wrestling, but it'll pass in a minute. Uh, we have the anchor is Jamie Grant, and the letterers are Phil Ballsman and Travis Lanham, and colorist is Jamie Grant. So the synopsis is Lex Luthor kills Superman. The end. You couldn't read that, dude? That's like fucking five words. 
Well, those five words are very hard for me to say. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, if, if we want a slight bit more detail, we can go on with um, Dr. Leo Quintum and his team from Project that's p.r.o.j.e.c.t. are exploring the sun when they are sabotaged or sabotaged by a Lex Luthor clone. Superman saves the day but acquires the ability to project his bioelectric aura. Lex Luthor has orchestrated this to overwhelm Superman's cells with massive amounts of solar radiation. Quentin determines that Superman's new power is also killing him, and he has one year left to live. Basically, or, you know, two can- and a half with delays. Right. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. And he basically has cancer. Yep. He has solar cell cancer. Um, solar cell anemia? I don't know. Lex Luthor is arrested, thanks to a Daily Planet article by Clark Kent. Clark Kent. Lex Luthor is arrested, thanks to a Daily Planet article by Clark Kent, and Superman decides to keep his impending death secret from the public. However, when Superman reveals his secret identity as Clark to Lois Lane, because he wants to spend his remaining time with her, Lois refuses to believe that Clark and Superman are the same person. For her birthday, Superman takes her to the Fortress of Solitude, where they have dinner in a stateroom of the RMS Titanic. Scott Gardner will appreciate that, if nothing else, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. During this visit, he also tells Lois that she can explore the fortress, save for one room that he is constantly checking. Superman's behavior heightens Lois's suspicions, and she becomes paranoid. She attacks Superman with a kryptonite laser, but his enhanced powers have rendered him immune to it. Woohoo! Superman calms her down and reveals that he was preparing her birthday present, a nice love session in the Crystal Palace. No, a costume for her and a liquefied form of his DNA that will grant her all his superpowers for 24 hours, which when it comes right down to it, is a much better present than a kid that he's going to abandon. I Using the agree, sir. <laughs> Using the name Superwoman, she and Superman stop a monster attack in Metropolis involving Samson, Atlas, and an Ultra Sphinx. Superman defeats them, and he and Lois leave for the moon and kiss before her powers fade and she falls asleep and Superman flies her back home. Luthor is guilty of crimes against humanity and is sentenced to death. Clark meets Luthor for an interview at Stryker's Island. Luthor discloses his respect for Clark as a journalist and states that he has no desire to escape as long as he defeats Superman by causing his death. He reveals to Clark that Superman is dying, hoping that it will be published in the Daily Planet. Nearing death, Superman accomplishes a variety of tasks that significantly help both humans and Kryptonians, and he completes his last will and testament. Meanwhile, Luthor survives his execution as he had taken a serum similar to what Superman made for Lois, and thereafter he escapes. Superman then learns of Luthor's ally, Solaris, who has tampered with the sun. Superman engages Solaris until a sun eater that Superman had cared for in the fortress and subsequently released returns to sacrifice itself to weaken It says to weaken it. I'm not sure which it we're talking about there, but that's okay. Superman brings Solaris to Earth because he has learned from the Superman squad that Solaris will become an ally in the future. Clark returns to the Daily Planet to submit his article, but he falls dead. As the staff tries to save him, Luthor arrives and attacks Metropolis. Uh Uh-oh. That is bad. Yes. 
Very thinking bad. he's on <laughs> thinking he's on his home planet of Krypton, Superman joins his Kryptonian father, Jor-El, who reveals that Superman's body is converting itself to a solar radio consciousness. He offers him a choice remain or come back to life. Clark wakens and fights Luthor with a gravity gun. The gravity gun warps time for Luthor, which burns out Luthor's powers because it was on a 24-hour limit. And when you warp the time, things happen. So yeah, as Luthor's power fade, as Luthor's powers fade, Luthor briefly sees the world as Superman sees it and weeps before Superman knocks him out. Superman and Lois embrace, and he proclaims his love for her once and for all. He takes off, flies into the sun, and repairs it, saving the day for one last time. One year later, Lois still believes that Superman will return. And inside the sun, Superman, now a solar being, is making machinery within. The story concludes with Quintum revealing that if something happens, they will be ready, standing before a door with Superman's characteristic shield, but its usual S has been replaced with the number two. Now, the synopsis that we were supplied by whoever out there was out there who wrote it left out some chapters, but I guess we'll cover those as we go along. Yes, we will. Basically, the idea here that John came up with, and I think is, is a, probably the best way to do it, is uh, basically just give you guys the, uh, the synopsis up front. And then just flip through the individual issues as we as we go along. Who the hell knows how long this is going to take? But you know, it's not like I had anything. I mean, it's Saturday night, so it's not like I had anything better to do. I'm I'm sleeping in tomorrow. Oh yeah, well there you go. I got to be somewhere at two fifteen p.m. So yeah, we're good. Oh yeah, okay. Well, basically, uh, this I I really dig this first page, and the reason for that is because this is the most succinct reencapsulation of Superman's origin story that I've ever heard. And I remember before everybody knew that uh, the Superman film franchise was going to be rebooted. And I want to say that was, it was one of those things that it was generally accepted as truth starting around 2010 or so. And the common consensus, at least among fans was that no, or at least most people didn't want to have to sit through another origin story. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, between Superman the movie and Lois and Clark, we've had just so freaking many origin stories in live action. But in any way, the big idea that people seem to have was that a variation on, on this page with these four panels could serve as a sort of adequate introduction to Superman in film. Now, I disagree with that, at least as far as film is concerned. But as far as setting the, the tone and the context... For this story, it's it's incredibly powerful, and it's also incredibly effective. It's just four panels, doomed planet, desperate scientists, last hope, kindly couple, flip the page. It's a double-page spread of Superman just hanging around, not near the sun. the sun. Yeah, yeah. on the sun. Right? <laughs> and it's, it's just hard to get m much more majestic than that, and... Everything that, if you ask me, every direction that this series eventually went in, everything that happened, and the, the style of it and tone, we were kind of set up for with those first three pages. And it's just, it's just incredibly powerful. I really love it. Frank Quietly, throughout this whole thing, really does bring home the bacon. And these, these are just some very powerful moving pages. And it's kind of funny. We know you I sit here... 
shoot my mouth off all night long about just those three pages, but obviously we've got other stuff to dig through. So uh, what have you got? Well, I was just thinking that, you know, when we did get another Superman film with another origin story in it, it's only because, well, it's only because, but that does have the benefit of having that, that origin story ties so fundamentally into the plot of the film that, you know, we couldn't really have had the story of Man of Steel without having spent 20 minutes on Krypton to start the film. Um, so whether we needed an origin story or not for for a movie in general, we definitely need it for that particular story. But for All-Star Superman, we don't need an origin story because his origin really has nothing to do with the rest of the story. So here you go. If you don't know anything about Superman, here's the basics. Now let's get going. And I, I do really enjoy it. Whenever I first saw this, I was like, wow. That's everything in a page, and that's all you really need to know. And it's basically the exact same thing that's been done in his origin ever since 1938. If you replace the kindly couple with a passing motorist, this is this is exactly the way it's always been. Couldn't agree more. And then from there, we uh, there's a there's this pretty big action set piece. Uh, basically, shit goes down on the uh, space shuttle. The Project Space Shuttle, this manned mission to the sun. And Superman has to save the day. And it's... Again, it's just... It, it's a, This is Superman at his Silver Age finest. And he's... He's basically doing... I almost want to say, you know, his... His, you know, his typical kind of Superman thing. But it's... It, it's different from the angle, though, that this is the first, and I don't even, of course, these pages aren't numbered, but basically he he takes the uh, the shuttle, spacecraft, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. takes it out of the uh, sun's orbit using a, uh, I guess, a projection of his uh, bioelectric aura. Our first taste of the fact that this is a Superman who's going to be very different and has become just in just since we've started reading, become very different. But he's this is really the seeds of everything that happens later with his uh, cancer, for lack of a better word. This is where you know basically uh, Lex's plot kind of starts. But it's kind of funny that Superman, the I guess the herald of Superman's death, is arguably one of his most spectacular rescues in his entire career, and uh, that that really works for me. It's kind of weird that being too super for his own good is what killed him because you're right. This is one of the biggest things he's ever done. I mean, you know, okay, so Superman's flying around the sun. It's a comic book. So what? But they really try to emphasize through the script and the dialogue that the sun is a hugely dangerous place to be. And there's a massive amount of multi-spectral energy out there. And Superman being a solar battery, basically, he can just absorb it and that's where he gets his powers. But... Through the course of events here, he overabsorbs things, and he he overextends himself by pulling off this mission. Um, I was rather impressed by the storytelling because you have the monster inside the ship. Uh, he was just a guy, but then he starts hulking out and gets like you know heroin syringes in his back or something. I don't know what that is. And then a few pages later, you find out that Lex Luthor is wired into a complex that's sending a control signal to that creature and he even takes into account the eight minute delay yes that oh god that played so well yes (laughs) so he's doing stuff on the planet and he gets caught in the middle of it 
And then eight minutes later, the stuff that he just did on Earth gets played out in the uh, solar satellite. So that is great. You know, like as you were saying before, basically there are that's not a continuous sequence. Now, there are some cuts in there, the first of which takes us to the Daily Planet newsroom where we see Steve Lombard, Lois Lane and Cat Grant hanging around while uh, uh, Lois uh, writes her new article about the uh, mission to map the sun basically is what happens. And this is one of it's a sort of throwaway moment, but I just love it. Jimmy Olsen arrived at work, having gotten there on his jetpack. <laughs> now, that, again, works for me on so frickin' many levels, because this is a Superman who has been... This is not a first-year Superman. This isn't even a tenth-year Superman. I mean, this is a guy who's been out there doing his thing. Like, what, do you, what would you say? Probably like 20 or 30 years at this point? Whatever, it's basically the ultimate Superman, and not in the sense of the Marvel continuity, but just like, this is everything that you could possibly imagine of Superman's career has all been accomplished, and it's all said and done, and you don't know it until the story progresses, but this is the end. So yeah, 20, 30 years sounds like a pretty good estimate to me. Right, and he's had... Because of that, he's had time. You know, the world has had time to adjust to the idea of Superman. He's led them into a brighter, happier, shinier, more futuristic, up with people type of, uh, you know, new day, new era. And as it happens, new technology. And so now it's starting to become kind of commonplace. Maybe not necessarily every single day, but it's not necessarily considered unusual that Jimmy Olsen might decide, you know what, I'm going to take my jetpack to work today. And, God, that just, that just works for me on so many levels. And then, you know, to kind of skip ahead, maybe a little bit out of place, but kind of all, along that same line, we later see a hover train just uh, cruising around the streets of Metropolis. It's a hover train. It's, it, I think it's, only, it's literally only in like two panels. Blink and you miss it. But this is the type of world that they live in. This is not our real world, and this is just sort of a surrogate for it, this is its own unique reality with its own, uh, basically a different level, a higher level of technology, a different, it's, it's just basically a different place. And Morrison basically created a universe that can sustain Superman having been active and on duty for 20 or 30 years now to where these really heavy, um, these really heavy sci-fi concepts it's not remarkable anymore to see them. It's basically as unusual as walking down the street and seeing a car. Well, right. Flashback it, it is, to, hmm? Go ahead. I was going to say flashback to 200 years ago, and that might have been, I don't know, cause for revolution, you know, these days. Right. So anyway, sorry, I cut you off. What were you going to say? No, no, I cut you off. I was just going to reinforce because it's, it's – in comics of the 60s and 70s, Superman does some pretty amazing stuff, and it comes up with some really big innovations to solve problems. Um, and, you know, because it's comics and because they kind of have to set the reset button to a certain extent because the stories have to take place in a world very much like our own, all of those amazing things just get written off at the end of the story. But if you live in a world where you have a sun god who is constantly, you know, saving the world with new innovations, those innovations are going to stick. And going back to Jimmy Olsen, 
Jimmy Olsen is a really quirky character in this story. And at first I wasn't sure what to think. And sadly in the film, all we get of the quirkiness is that he's in drag in one scene. And you don't really know why. Yeah, that um, was the weirdest thing because they don't explain. It's like Jimmy Olsen's a drag queen. And you would think so if you if all you saw was the movie. That was very weird. Yeah, but it, but it, with all the rest of Jimmy Olsen that we see in this story, him coming to work in drag one day, totally believe it. Um, so, but if you read Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, that boy leads the strangest, most fucked up life ever. And you have two choices. You can either lose your mental balance and complete, come completely unhinged, or you learn how to embrace it and fly with it, and you become a really interesting person as a result. Um, and that's what we see here. Right. And actually, you know what? Since since we're on this subject, I thought we may may actually wait. But no, that, no that, this works for me. Um, basically, there's a – this is what – this is basically Jimmy Olsen, Mr. Action. He's he's right there in the center of things. He does, he does crazy shit every day, and it's nothing to him to drink doomsday serum to shut down an out-of-control Superman. Yes, yes, yes. I know we're getting ahead of ourselves, but believe me, it, it, all of this is to make a point. I've always liked the sort of Mr. Action take on Jimmy Olsen because this guy is worthy of being called Superman's friend. And, and in my opinion, you earn that. I mean, people take it for granted that Lois Lane is worthy of Superman's affections because she's a force to be reckoned with everywhere else in life. I don't understand why that same thing wouldn't apply for Jimmy being Superman's pal. I mean, what do you think? Um, yeah, both of those... <sighs> It's <laughs> after 75 years of comics, we just kind of sort of take things as natural, take things as for granted. And, and you're right. If, if you're going to tell that story, there really should be some reason behind it. But it's just this is the way it is because it's always been this way. But Lois Lane should be somebody that you want Superman to love, that is worthy of the love of Superman. And Jimmy Olsen should be somebody that's worth being Superman's pal. And in New 52, he's not. But he is Clark Kent's pal. And I think that that works um, for the dynamic that they're currently working with. But in this, um, whenever Superman is very much, you know, the, the dominant force in, in the man's life, Jimmy Olsen's got to be got to be willing to go through some super adventures and, and hold his own. And I think that's what we see here. I agree. And um, to sort of uh, flip ahead, we kind of talked about Lex's. Um, I don't I don't know what you call it. He's basically miming. No, he's not miming. He's really just projecting um, all of the uh, clone, the exploding clone monsters dialogue mm -hmm. eight minutes early. Uh, so I guess that's not really miming. He's just he's just he's uh, controlling it. It's just yeah. instead of instantaneous control, it has to cross the you know yeah, it, of space. Yeah, it's a broadcast, and so there's a there's a time delay. Um, but after all all of those things, we flip ahead to uh, Superman at. Uh, the project, and this is their moon base. Looks like it, yeah. Yeah, and basically, uh, Doctor Quinnum uh, hits Superman with the news, and I just love this moment because what he's—it's—it's it's sort of a close-up of uh, Doctor Quinnum's face, mm -hmm. and what he says is basically, "Superman, you're gonna die." I honestly, I you know, I wish there was a nicer way to say it. There's not. The very next panel shows Superman sort of glowy, and then he he doesn't freak out. He doesn't lose his mind. He doesn't go into you know, uh, hysterics. He doesn't cry. 
he basically says, so how much time do you, do you think I've got? He just takes it right on the chin like that. And it just, it, I mean, how many people do you know who could get a diagnosis like that and say, yeah, dude, you've got yeah, about a year. Look, I'd like to think that I'm a fairly grounded person. I don't know how I'd react to that. You know, I'd like to think I could be as stoic about it as Superman was, but maybe not, you know? And let's face it, this is one of this is probably the most dangerous man in the world giving him this kind of bad news. What's to say that if he does, that, that if he has a tantrum over it, he doesn't take the entire freaking universe with him? Well, it's kind of like the the whole like last day on the job. Itis, you know, it's like, how much can I, how much can I get away with when I know there are no consequences tomorrow? Right. Um, and, and, and there is that temptation just kind of, you know, wreak a little havoc and run a little muck and, and see what happens. Um, I think it speaks some volumes that he goes outside and has some quiet time after he's learned this, that he, he does have to cope with it, but it's all internal. And that's the thing about Superman is, you know, he is vulnerable, but he doesn't project it. He, he, he just – he processes things very internally. And so after hearing about it and, – and he can see the evidence. It says he looks at himself and he sees tiny little fireworks below my skin um, that – well, that explains the weird you know feelings I've been having since I left the sun. And uh, he goes outside and has to sort of you know absorb it. Um, but he doesn't go crazy. He doesn't explode. He's just – he's kind of super about the whole thing, you know? Right. And, you know, I think it's one thing, like, there are so many just quintessential Superman moments throughout this entire series. This is one that you really can't show too often, because how often does Superman, how often does he get, basically, uh, this kind of, uh, this this kind of news? You know, it's a pretty rare thing, and it just, his calmness about the whole thing, it just... It just works so perfectly for me, and it doesn't even throw him off his game before he's back in the Daily Planet newsroom, seconds away from getting fired, and manages to make it into Perry White's office, having saved a, a kid from a speeding truck on the way there, shows up to do his job. And, you know, I, and that's, that is by itself, that's another thing right there. I mean, I'm sorry if, God forbid, somebody ever tells me, dude, you've got a year left. Do you seriously think I'm going to go back to work after that? I mean, really? You know? <laughs> and here he is without missing a beat. Boom, he's back in the Daily Planet building and ugh. It just it just works for me. It's perfect. Now, you read a lot more modern Superman than I have. I'm I'm assuming that Project Quintum, I'm sorry, that Professor Quintum and the Project and his slinky green-haired assistant, those are all new characters and concepts. Um because okay, then we had like the project, Project Cadmus, but this isn't that. Um, and that that's where my ignorance of, about some aspects of the Bronze Age may actually end up betraying me. But my understanding is that the project, which is to say that abbrevi- that that word is an abbreviation, P R O J E C T, was what Cadmus was known as, at least to begin with. And where the the word Cadmus Project actually comes from, I have no idea. But what we're what I think we're basically supposed to surmise from all of this is that Project, it basically is Cadmus. They're just they're going, I guess, with the original name. Now as to Doctor uh, uh, Quintum and his um, uh, Captain Kirk 
ex-girlfriend here. Um, both of those, as far as I know, are uh, created specifically for this series. Maybe I'll be shown to be wrong, but I've never seen these people anyplace else. Okay. So hopefully that helps. And I she does have a name, not just a tight suit. Her name is Agatha. Agatha. But... Um, but when I first read this, uh, Bizarro Worker Drones kind of threw me off because I was like, how do you get Bizarro Worker Drones? But as, as we find out through the course of the story, he's sort of tooled with the concept of Bizarro for this series. Um, but there, there, there's a lot of really high science fiction concepts thrown into this first issue around the Superman elements. And it's a really interesting contrast between that and everything that's going up on the moon and the sort of mundane boy chasing his dog through the streets, um, fumbling with your coffee in front of Steve Lombard, getting into work on time, Daily Planet. So there's – it's like you have – both things going on. You have the really mundane world, and you have all this fantastic stuff going on, and they're both part of Superman's reality. Right. And, yeah, I, I, the best way I can think of it is to say I completely agree. And speaking of the heavy-duty sci-fi aspects, it's, it's kind of funny that uh, he's always saving people, even when he's not in costume. Because <laughs> this is page 31 in my trade. Now, what that works out to... In the uh, the uh, single issues, I could not tell you. But um, at least in on page 31 of my trade, there's a moment where Clark Kent is walking Lois Lane home, and Clark spies the, on this hover train that's uh, gliding around a problem that's about to happen. And so he uses the um, the uh, goofy Clark Kent disguise to save this guy. This guy's life, a, a, a fellow bystander's life, by pretending to crash into him on accident. And then basically a huge chunk falls off of the chain right where the guy would have stood if Clark hadn't, hadn't knocked him down. So that, oh, that works for me on so freaking many levels. That omni-awareness is like, okay, I see that happening, so all I need to do is this. Yeah, it's very, very Superman. And it's very Clark that he, he masks it with a fumble. Right. That he, 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 he does he saves this guy's life, but he does it by bumbling. And so that's that's very Christopher Reeve Clark, and it's very uh I, I like what it's doing here. Clark is massive. And Lix Luther even later calls him fat and tells him to work off some pounds. He, you know, makes a crack about it. But um you don't see any lessening of the mass of Superman's body just because he's wearing Clark Kent clothes. Which I thought was an interesting choice in the artwork because you do tend to sort of diminish Clark's look when he's as Clark compared to Superman. Unless you're Tim Sale, of course. <laughs> Unless you're Tim Sale. <laughs> or Frank Quitely. Right. And actually, you know what? Maybe this is uh, – was it here? Was it in this trade? It was – I saw a um, – basically it was like a little bit from uh, the Frank Quitely sketchbook where he actually explained you know, what it – or. I don't know, showed what his um, philosophy was behind that. But he basically had Clark hold his head in a certain way that it looked like it gave him a double chin. And he basically, you know, and, and kind of slumped his spine a little bit. And mm -hmm. so he, he basically shed as much of his height as he could. Yeah, he's rounding his shoulders forward and sort of, you know, slumping over and right. trying and to do what he can. He's using he, – he looks like he's shuffling as he's walking along there. Right. Um, I guess now this 
this first issue that we uh, are, are coming to the end of here, this was um, – I, to say this is my first exposure to the story is kind of silly because, of course, it was everybody's first exposure to the story. But they released this first issue as a free comic book day special. Oh, really? In 2008, I think. Oh, wow. Or it might have been nine. Uh, one of the first free comic book days after I started reading comics again. Right. And I picked it up and I was like, oh, my gosh. And the ending and the reveal that happens on the last page, which we're about to detail in a second, I guess I could just gonna say, whenever he says Clark, Lois has something to tell you and he opens up his shirt and she drops the groceries, that's where the free comic book day special ends. That's where the first issue ends. And I really wanted to read more of the story. And then ultimately I found out that it was in trades and whatever. So I went back and read it. But whenever I first read this, this was all I knew. And it was one of my first exposures as a late 20s returning to comics comic book reader, one of my first exposures to modern Superman storytelling. And I was all kinds of jazzed by this. I was like, I don't know what this is, but I want more. <laughs> and, and it's a great ending to the story. It And it really is. And because, you know, you mentioned the sort of Reeve thing uh, that happened on the on the previous page. These last two pages, I think, are just rife with that, and that's one example. But another kind of good one is this is sort of a variation on uh, an actual movie line. Instead of saying, Lois, there's something I have to tell you, uh, he's, he, he simply says, I have something to tell you. But, I mean, come on, the, the words aren't that different. But the other thing is she drops her big bag of groceries, and there are oranges aplenty in there. And... <laughs> You know, freshly squeezed, you know, all that stuff. And, you know, those are the sort of, assuming those are intended to be movie references, those are actually the kinds of things I can actually kind of live with. So that I, I thought that was a, a really nice touch. But since we're on the subject, though, this is one of those things that as I was reading this stuff at the time when it came out, again, I, even by the time I'd reached the end of the issue, I guess I hadn't really com like totally processed what exactly this story was going to be. But I thought, oh, shit. Okay, so, all right. Basically, now we are right pretty much in lockstep with where the current books are going right now. Yeah, that's got a lot more Silver age type of trappings to it, but basically we are now once again in a universe where Lois knows who Clark really is, fucking blah, 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 blah. But there's really no way to have told this story without bringing Lois into the loop. And let's face it, I didn't really have the best grounding going into the story that I might have to, to really appreciate this. So at the time, I guess what I'm saying is at the time, this really turned me off. I thought it was a disappointment. I thought, wow, you're telling her the big secret in the first freaking issue of your book. Like really? But now I really do cherish it. I think it's a great moment. And honestly, that next to last panel of uh, page one, the last page, or sorry, the next last panel of issue one, the very last page, it's a sort of close-up. It's a close-up of uh, Clark's chest as he's pulling open uh, his shirt to show Superman's um, S symbol beneath. I just I love the detail of that. I love how the the shirt looks like it's just about to get pulled apart in Clark's hands. Mm -hmm. I, I love Frank Quitely's art, but I really love this panel. It's just powerful. I dig it, and it's it's so simple. But it to me that the, there's something about the visual the, the visual of Clark's a button-up shirt getting pulled open to show the Superman symbol beneath. There's just something so powerful about that. Never gets old seeing it. So, and going back to something you were saying, the um, there are very very stark differences between reading a book when it's coming out, mm 
where every page and the cliffhanger at the end where that is the latest events and you have no idea what's going on and all you can do is judge a story based on what's just happened mm-hmm. and your guesses of what might happen next. And it is easy to judge a story in ways that turn out to be false because this, you just have what you have and you know you don't know where it's going. Um, as opposed to coming back to a story later, whenever it's all said and done, you know its place in history and you can just read it as a whole piece and your reactions to those same things can be very, very different. So, um, yeah, this now, whereas, you know, him revealing it to Lois was, was a turnoff for you at the time. For me, it was a jazz, but now we're looking back on it. Okay. So this is his last year of life. We know where the story is going. He's going to die at the end for all intents and purposes. And if I knew that I had one year to live, I'd, do everything I could to get the woman I love if I hadn't gotten her yet. And if that means telling her I love her and showing her that there's a big S on my chest, well, then I want to go carve that S in my chest and show her, you know, show her that it's there. So, um, some girls like to have an S on your chest. I don't know why, but yeah, yeah. Chicks dig that. I've, I've noticed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and actually, you know what? You actually do raise a good point. I, maybe I am being a little hard on myself, but, um, it's just, that's, that was the baggage that I was bringing to this back then. But then, Back then, I don't think it was generally known that this was that this was not an ongoing series. That this was basically going to be a twelve issue maxi series. I don't think that was very well known. Very well could be right. Right, and so when I, you know, when I was reading this at the time, what I thought was this was a new ongoing book, and that you know that whole th- bit with Quinnum at you know on the moon base was going to be well, we're going to you know last minute there's going to be some kind of a miracle cure, and we're going to have an and next issue, so nothing to worry about. And you know, I guess that's something I you're you're absolutely right though that we, you have certain reactions to things when you read them at the time. That whenever you're able to come back later, like you said, and read it sort of as a continue uh, as a, a finite work, and especially when it's intended to be a finite work, you actually do have a different appreciation for it. And anyway, but it's just at the time. You know, I, I guess I was just kind of trapped in the idea of there being, I don't know, an ongoing narrative here that, you know, when, when once Morrison finishes his run on All-Star Superman, then somebody else is going to come along and then they'll do whatever and then all of that. And it kind of felt like he was rolling a grenade out there that someday he gets to walk away from, but other people are going to have to deal with. I was fine with that in the main continuity. And and honestly, the only reason I accept it here is because it, you know, this is a this is a, a, a work unto itself. It's a, it's its own story, and it ends. And so you have to, if you're going to tell an end of Superman story, and Lois doesn't already know who he is, she's got to find out in that story. And so, anyway, so wow, I'm, I didn't expect to have this sort of flavor in in our discussion where. Uh, we were going to be, you know, comparing our uh, our reactions to this stuff at the time and then now. But, wow, that seems to be where we are. So, anyway, I'm <laughs> rambling. Um, well, it's um, – I, I don't know if they wanted to keep things as much under wraps as possible because I'm sure that whoever had – was it Dan DiDio in charge of things in 2006? I guess it was because that was Final Crisis. So, yes. um, so, you know, I'm sure he knew – that this was going to be the end of Superman's story. And they just didn't want to reveal that to the fans because that sort of spoils where things are going. But if this had been published by Marvel, it would have been called Superman the End. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, it would have. 
And as it is the way it's done, you can tell the story and, and, and go with it and roll with it for better, or for worse, and then have the reveal at the end that, oh, my gosh, they're really not going to back out um, and and take it for what it's worth. But um, I'm looking at the amazing cover of issue, too, if you're ready for it. I'm ready. And that is an, and again, this kind of speaks to the, uh, I don't know, the, the, the silver aginess of, uh, of this story that all, a lot of these covers are just very, I don't know, exemplary of what, uh, of what the silver age was all about. You know, they, they would have these very shocking kind of over the top covers, you know, and who is mm-hmm. the monster that, 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 uh, stalks Smallville and all this stuff. And, or, or what is Superman's biggest secret? You know, and all that kind of stuff. And this is very much the kind of thing that you would get back then. And it boggles the mind. Like, uh, yeah, here it is. Can you guess the secret of Superman's forbidden room? And, it's, and in the 60s, your stories would often start with the cover sketch or the splash page. And that's the and, ba- and, and a lot of times the editor would come up with that and then hand it off to a writer. Say, here, do something with this. And sometimes that splash page would end up being a very insignificant panel of the story. But, hey, I worked it in somehow. And, you know, here's the story I got. But here, of course, you know, it's more important than that. But it is a very Silver age feel and yet updated at the same time. Right. And maybe now is as good a time as any to dive into the, to the tone of it. I mean, I know that we're kind of bogging ourselves down and we only just got finished with the first issue. But um, to me, I think people say – the the term Silver Age, especially when it comes to DC, has a very pejorative connotation to it because people want to associate that with weird, goofy, kind of immature types of storytelling. And to me, we need to draw a distinction between the way comics were written in the Silver Age, which is to say kind of kid-oriented and intended to be accessible to them, mm-hmm. and then the types of I don't know the types of stories. You know, there's the, the stories that are told, and then there's the way that the story there's there's the way that they're told. Right, and they're very different things. Right, and you know, I, prior to this, I think the only the only way that people could really process a sort of updated Silver Age was, forgive me, irreverent bullshit like whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow, where <laughs> everything that was charming and innocent about the Silver Age was pretty much bent over a table and butt raped in those two issues and it, it, it's just it's not lost on me that you know Jimmy only died in that story Jimmy and Lana only died in that story after they kind of became their quintessential silver age selves uh crypto again another quintessential silver age element died at the hands of another quintessential silver age element on and on and on and it just kind of felt like what Alan Moore wanted that story to be was a, a kind of a Silver Age snuff film. And this is not like that at all. This is basically taking a lot of Silver Age stylizations and concepts and ideas, but putting it, in, you know, I guess into the context of a, of a pretty mature story. And I don't mean that in a blood and gore kind of way. I mean, it just, these are, this is just more adult. Well, to extend your metaphor, so Alan Moore bent the Silver Age over the table and butt raped it, whereas Grant Morrison has lit the scented candles, he has some music playing in the background, and he's going to stroke that Silver Age nice and slow until we have a very, you know, pleasant experience going on here. Right, yeah. And I'm, and I'm sure if he was here, he would say in his uh, inimitable accent, or at least inimitable by me, 
It was tantric sex, so I don't know. <laughs> Probably what that was. So, but anyway, to get into um, to get into the uh, the second issue, you have Superman. He basically flies Lois's car, and I love it. He flies her car to the Arctic, to the uh, Fortress of Solitude, and this again is another indication that this is very much the pre-crisis Superman. Specifically, even I'd say the the Bronze Age, or sorry, the uh, Silver Age Superman, because he has a key to his house. Or under a doormat, and it's made of dwarf star matter. And gone is that huge, that that gigantic um, air. Which they even mention. She mentions what happened to the big golden key because in the Silver Age he had a gigantic key that only he could lift that looked like an arrow if a plane was flying overhead. It was disguised as an arrow, and he he and now he has a, you know, something that's. He can still only he can lift it because it's so massive, but it's just right under the map. Right, and it's and it's the size of a regular key, and it's it, it just it, it works for me. This is this is to me it's it's basically it's Grant Morrison taking a very Silver Age it, and let's face it potentially goofy concept and finding a way to I, I don't want to say give it credibility because I think the giant fucking airplane key already has credibility. <laughs> considering what we're talking about. Right. But he finds a way to, I don't know, just cut loose with his imagination. You know, he didn't, he didn't hold anything back. And that works for me on, on, on a lot of levels. And this is really the first, uh, well, not the first taste, but an early taste that this is very much the uh, Silver Age Superman. But from there, they walk into the, uh, into the proper Fortress of Solitude And the thing that jumps out to me about these opening scenes is Lois Lane's repeated denial that what she has just found out, the big reveal at the end of the last issue, she won't accept it now. Because this is the Lois Lane who throughout the 60s and 70s and some of the 50s repeatedly tried to prove that Clark Kent was Superman and wasn't able to do so because Clark Kent kept pulling the pulling the carpet out from underneath her. And I just want to – if you don't mind, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get my soapbox out here for a second. Please it's do. in the closet, so you'll have to – excuse me for a second. I'm going to stand up on this thing. Okay. The Lois Lane um, mockery with the glasses and how dumb was she? Mm-hmm. I have serious issue with that. Yes, it's funny. Yes, I'll laugh. All right, it's a great line. But Lois Lane knew that Clark Kent was Superman 75,000 times. And every time she said anything about it, Superman had to trick her. He lied to her. He covered things up. He, He built robots that could take his place just so he could lie to this woman. The only person who had enough of a close relationship with him to know his secret and who did know it, he repeatedly, creatively, and elaborately lied to. So it's not that Lois was dumb, but from a certain point of view, it's because Superman's a bastard. Pretty much. Actually, (laughs) and you know what? It's funny you should mention all that. That sort of brings up another point. And same thing with Lana, but that's another story. Right. Well, yeah, but... That sort of brings up another point that I honestly had not really considered until just now. One of the uh, reasons I've always had, uh, I shouldn't say hostility, but some amount of resistance to bringing Superman into a a more grounded and sort of real-world type of setting is that that Superman can't have superman robots he can't do all the things that uh, all the other things that 
um, Superman did to protect his identity back in the Silver Age. And so for people to, to not know back in the Silver Age, they had compelling reasons, many of which were created, fabricated really, by Superman himself. For them to not know in a more realistic type of setting, how dumb are they, you know? And it's one of those things where, you know, it's you can try to make this stuff seem more credible, but what you ultimately end up doing is, I don't know, damaging it, you know? Because now, yeah, it may, I, I guess you do have whatever enjoyment there may be, there may be in having a, a, a kind of more real-world setting, but now you're, you're basically deforming the myth, I think, to its own detriment, you know? What, what are your thoughts? Do you agree with that, or...? Yeah, I mean things change, and so you. I mean, you you do end up altering things, and now I I kind of wish, although they're not pursuing the romantic element, and I think that that's as it should be at least for the foreseeable future. I kind of wish that they would just let Lois know, which was George Perez's plan whenever he was writing the book. Really? Um, yeah, I did not know if, that. If you take George Perez's um, six-issue arc and you read it and you pay attention to Lois's um, scenes, the plot of the story cannot work unless Lois knows that Superman is Clark. And it, it, it's, it's sort of there in issue four and blatantly obvious in issue five. And yet it's never come out and specifically said – and so the editors get away with brushing it under the table whenever Paris is off the book. But the story just doesn't work unless she realizes that Superman is Clark. Um, and then in later issues, Scott Lobdell did some stuff with Lois Lane getting level 12 intelligence for a while. And there was this whole psi war and she you know, knew that Superman was Clark. And whenever that seemed to end, it seemed like she lost that awareness and yet – it turns out there are some plot lines that are still going from that. So she might not have actually lost the awareness. I don't know. It's an ongoing story. You know how subplots go. Yeah. I kind of wish that Lois Lane would just know because she's a smart woman and he doesn't have all the robots and all of the just batshit insane methods of covering up his identity that they use in the 50s and 60s because that's no longer the story that people want to read. They don't want to read every single month three different ways of Clark lying to Lois about his identity. But that's what you got in 1961. Right. So um, I kind of wish they would just let her know. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Well, anyway, so from there, they enter into the uh, Fortress of Solitude proper, and we are greeted by a very Silver Age type of fortress where you have this giant Joker penny. A chessboard of uh, statues of Superman's friends and foes, Superman robots wandering around, what looks like a Legion of Superheroes time bubble. Mm -hmm. You can't have the fortress without the, the bottled city of Kandor. There's a space shuttle. It's called Columbia. And then, of course, dominating this entire frickin' uh, two-page splash is the RMS Titanic. Which you don't even realize is there. Until it gets mentioned, and you go back and look, and you're like, oh, wow, that was in the background there, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, and I don't and know. And he stole Batman's Joker penny. Yes, he did, and I got to tell you, considering uh, the attitude I've had with this uh, retrospective series, that doesn't bother me. And the single, oh, there's like one appearance of Batman in this story as a chess piece on that board. Yep. And Brainiac's there, too. Sweet. 
yeah it uh, it and, and I, again it just works for me and this wait a minute that's that's solaris on the chessboard too like on the far right cut off on the end of the page i guess um could be i have a yellow glowy thing on my on my digital copy oh okay fair enough okay well Anyway, so uh, then from there, it's more Silver Agey. Well, I don't know Silver Agey, but basically, the it's it's not a Silver Age concept, but at least it, it, to me, it's a, it feels like a s- sort of Silver Age idea, the sort of over the top imagination of Superman having a holographic correspondence with uh, his own descendants, and that really that that works for me just from the point of view of just you know crazy over the top imagination. And this is an idea that Superman that, – that Grant Morrison used other places in his writing too because I think the future Superman come into his JLA run or so I've heard. I haven't read. Um, but the idea that there are old, other Supermen in the future, which was introduced in the Silver Age, um, Morrison definitely liked that idea. Yes, he did. And it's specifically the uh, Superman – it looks like it, that's Cal Kent. The well, Actually, it says it right there. What am I saying? It looks like it, as if I'm so observant. Nope, says it right there on the page. Cal Kent, the Man of Steel of Tomorrow, Superman of the Year, 85,230 A.D. And so what you have here then basically is the Silver Age idea of Superman speaking to his own descendants through some sort of who's he, what's this um, gadget here that he's got, but it being a specifically Grant Morrison concept of being uh, specifically Cal Kent. And again, it, it... you know, I, there's only so many times I, I can say it without, I guess, annoying everybody. But God, it just it works for me. And uh, yeah. Anyway, so I want to I, I want to comment on how um, elegant and classy and beautiful Lois looks throughout this story. Um, we have her her shower scene, which is you know neat, and then she changes to this really really nice gown. That's what she's wearing on the cover, and um, you know she's a beautiful woman. And it's just great. But at the same time, while he's talking to Cal Kent and everything, she still doesn't really believe. Because he says Cal Kent. She's like, Cal Kent, huh? Like, you just made that up on the spot? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it so does almost great. seem like he's trying to convince her. Oh, yeah, this is Cal Kent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, forging a sun just for kicks so he can feed it to the sun eater. That's something that... Superman has never been able to do since 1985. No, he hasn't. No. And uh, I love it. I love it. I love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Uh, I, you know, I honestly, I could, ha- I could probably withstand an entire six issue miniseries, just about all the cool stuff that you could do and just hanging around the fortress of solitude. <laughs> and I guess not least of them is whining and dining Lois. I mean, Superman shows up for their sort of date in Kryptonian formal wear from their fourth age. And it's sort of this, it, it's a hooded version of his own, uh, his own outfit. And he explains uh, that his trip to the sun, it, it did more than just strengthen him, which I guess that's a detail that we missed. It does more than strengthen him. It actually uh, tripled his, his curiosity, his imagination and his creativity. And so, you know, Superman, master of time management, of course he's going to figure out a way to work little projects and stuff like this into his schedule. I mean, he's he's a master at it. And 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 it also works for me that it's specifically Kryptonian. I, you know, it I can see where that might be a turnoff to some, you know, who prefer a more I'm not sure humanistic is the is the right way to 
phrase it, but I don't know. A, a, a Superman who's a lot more in touch with his um, the Kryptonian aspects of his identity, and he would do something like this. It just it adds up for me. Mm-hmm. And then we have the argument with him where Lois is pointing out kind of what I was ranting about earlier, how she's known he's been Clark so many times. There have always, always been these tricks. And she's at this moment, she's not really very appreciative of finding out that she was right all along. And, and he wants her to be, but she's not. So I think she storms out of dinner, doesn't she? Yes, she does. And the 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 the, the structure of this story is a bit non-linear. We go back and forth between before dinner, during dinner, after dinner. All those scenes are kind of intercut. Yeah, they are. And there's actually a, a neat little moment, you know, during those intercuts where Superman stands in front of the mirror of truth, and he's wearing his Superman outfit and his his glasses, but the mirror only reflects Superman without the glasses. It's showing him his truth. And it's, again, it's it's just a tiny little detail in Quietly's art that it, you kind of have to stare at it for a sec before you really see it. But man, oh man, it's, it's really powerful. I, uh, and I dig it because it... I'm trying to find the words, but... It, 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 it's just it's one of those visuals, I think, that maybe defies words. But I guess what it tells me is that it Superman is this guy's truth. It's the truth of who he is. And mm-hmm. he's not Kal-El. He's not Clark Kent. He's Superman. That's his truth. And it the mirror obviously in, interprets the glasses as a facade, fake. It's not true. And it does not show up in, in the reflection. It's just it works for me. And for 50 years, that's how it was. And the storytelling has changed a bit since then. And, we're, and we keep on using this word Silver Age, Bronze Age, and Pre-Crisis because that's – that you know we're going to beat those words in the ground. Um, but you know after 85, they started playing with other ways of looking at Superman. And that's valid. That's fine. But you know this guy's an alien from another world. And he's a super-powered guy who every day has to go to work and pretend that he's not. So he looks in the mirror – wearing his disguise and the mirror says, fuck your disguise. You're Superman. Right. And you know, it's kind of funny. This actually sort of ties in with a, um, it it wasn't, it it was sort of, I guess the back half of an episode that was running thin. You haven't heard it yet because I haven't released it yet, but I'm behind on your episodes. Anyway, I was, I'm in December on, on, on my feed. Oh boy. Oh wow. Okay. Well, yeah, you're definitely a long way off from it, but basically what I do is I sort of give, my view of the, what is it, I guess the trichotomy, uh, Superman, Clark, and Kal-El, mm-hmm. who, like, which of those is he? And I think Superman, in his purest form, he's not Kal-El, a Kryptonian, and he's not Clark Kent, a human. He's Superman, a hybridization of uh, the best of both. And he doesn't, he doesn't really relate entirely to Krypton, nor does he Earth. He sees things that he hears things that other people don't. And to me, just in terms of his consciousness, he's a completely unique creature in all of in all the universe. To say that he has to be either human or alien tends to overlook the fact that his perspective is unlike any living being there's ever been. And that's why he can't be Clark. He can't be Kal-El. He can only ever be Superman. And I, 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 I 
love it when the character is portrayed that way because it's it's something that rings so true. And on this page, the one you were talking about where he's looking in the mirror, I like the way it's written because Lois Lane is dealing with the exact same questions in her mind while Superman is dealing with them in front of the mirror. What if he's telling the truth? What if there really is some part of him that's actually bumbling oafish Clark Kent? I don't know if I could live with that. And then the last panel of the page, the Clark Kent glasses are on the floor. And Superman's walking away from them. So Lois Lane is wondering if she's going to have to deal with a Superman who's also kind of Clark. And Superman is like, he's leaving everything Clark behind because he's not Clark. He's Superman. Um, And I'm just going to interrupt our our thought flow here just to say that uh, it seems like this is becoming – we're going to use All-Star Superman as a touching stone to basically – monologue about about all the things about superman that make him cool which was not what i was expecting when i came here but i'm really really loving it so <laughs> oh okay i thought i was gonna have to you know maybe uh curb no, myself no no this this is this is great because i um of course i have my superman show right now that's solo and so i don't really get to just kind of like geek out about superman very often with people anymore so this is this has been fun um this is continuing to be fun and then we start to get to the sort of um less rational part of the story as Lois Lane starts to kind of freak out. Right. And um, the Superman with the wraps around his face being like from the distant future. Yes. <laughs> the I, only thing that mars this scene for me, because I, I, I do enjoy this scene, but the only thing that mars it for I me know, is I know exactly line. what it's going to be. It, let, don't tell me, let me guess. The close-up of the unknown Superman of 4500 AD, that close up, that uh, very last panel on that page where he asks uh, who a certain person was. Is, is that what you're talking about? Yep. And that just, that just, you know, okay. So you were trying to be funny. It didn't work. It's happened for me too. But who was JLo? That's why, what? what? <laughs> why do you care? If right. you're the Superman of 4500 AD or whatever year, why do you care about J-Lo and how do you not know that? Well, right. And if you don't know it, yeah, why would you care? But the other thing does is Wiki- – Does Wikipedia go offline between now and then? Is that what's going to happen? Well, I think I could kind of no prize this. I don't really give a damn about protecting against spoilers for stuff we're about to talk about anyway. Mm-hmm. This is Superman. That we're talking. It's uh, they. He says he's the unknown Superman of 4500 AD. I, I'm sure there's a reason for that. It's not really revealed in the story, at least not entirely. But this is basically Superman that we're talking that, that she's talking to. It's Superman of either the past or relative to herself or something. I don't remember, but he's he's Superman, right? And w- what I think he could be trying to do is he knows exactly you know, what's going on right now, at least to some degree, he's maybe speaking to a future version of Lois. And so maybe there are things that he's trying to protect himself against her telling him. And so if he, I don't know, maybe this was just an attempt on his part to sort of change the subject. But to, to my recollection, this is the, this is the only like really pop culture reference that this thing that this entire miniseries ever makes. I don't think we ever really hear anything about, you know, like Britney Spears or The Day After Tomorrow or whatever else was, you know, big and popular, Pirates of the Caribbean, when whatever else was big and popular when, when these comics were coming out. And it's just this one kind of weird, intrusive moment where pop culture comes 
or then modern day pop culture comes crashing in on this really immaculate kind of perfect science fantasy and it, look, it's not worth getting pissed off about. I'm just saying it did kind of ruin the moment for me. And um, Yeah, it's just one of those moments that pulls you out of the story. You're like, what? And then you keep on reading. Although I had not put this together with the fact that in issue, I guess it's six or something, Superman dresses up like this with the, with the wraps around his face. Right. And from a storytelling point of view, I had to give props to Morrison because he set this up here as an unknown future Superman. So whenever he shows up later, you already have that idea and you you embrace it. The fact that there's a Superman wearing bandages, you don't ask questions because you've already seen it. At the same time, is this actually a later future Superman who's punking Lois? Like, is this actually our Superman after he, you know, after he becomes a sun god and does everything at the end and actually manages to come back to Earth, you know, however many years later and now he's punking low? I, I don't know. Well, my assumption was that, you know, it's actually because of the sun god aspect that I thought, well, assuming I'm right that this is Superman, it would have to be Superman from a previous era because we know where this one's going. So if he's actual – and by which I mean – Cal L, if he's mm-hmm. that Superman, it stands to reason that he would have to be a Superman from the past, and he knows he's speaking to Lois of relative to himself, the future, and so he's got to protect himself against knowing too much of his own of his own destiny, and so I don't know. That's it was the most I was able to come up with. But to answer your question, do I, you know, is this for sure the uh, you know Superman, All Star Superman of Maybe, I don't know, five years earlier or ten years earlier or something like that. Honestly, I don't know. But uh, that was just the only thing I could come up with. But what I will say is – I and damned if I can remember which one. But I do know that this – the idea of there being an unknown Superman is – say it with me – a Silver Age concept. It actually <laughs> comes from – I think an Action Comics cover. This is not something that Grant Morrison came up with. Now, maybe the execution of it is or the way he uses it, maybe that's original. But the idea of, you know, this, the simple concept of this, no, he can't really take credit for that. And, of course, now I'm blanking on which one it was. But anyway, so whatever. Lois loses her shit over all this. She's extremely paranoid. She grabs a weapon, flees um, from some Superman robots who are, uh, for all she knows, coming to kill her, makes a run for it. And then she gets what could have been – she gets what could have been the drop on Superman – she blasts him in the chest with a with a this kryptonite ray gun, and thank God that could have like terribly destroyed him and ruined the story and ruined her life forever. Right, but we it it comes up that you know wow this is wow he's now invulnerable to green kryptonite radiation and so now it just kind of tickles, and again, this is a another just kind of typical Morrisonism for this book. It just it plays so freaking well for me that now, well, of course he's he's uh, become I- I immune to, to green kryptonite. I mean, he's been exposed at this point, number one, to so much solar radiation, and then he just got overdosed with it. How could this stuff possibly make a dent in him anymore, you know? Right. And uh, it just it works for me. <laughs> so anyway – Following that, uh, we get an explanation about why Lois's behavior is so erratic. She's basically been uh, 
exposed to uh, some alien chemicals that induce paran like extreme paranoia uh, in uh, in uh, humanoids, and so that she's not been acting in her right mind since I don't know since about well hell even before they even started having dinner. That's right. the reason for her just kind of goofy and erratic behavior. She's not been really herself. And you know what? I hate to say it, but I don't know if this was intentionally a movie reference here, but there's a point right after Lois blasts Superman with the kryptonite ray gun that she makes this face. She says, Superman, oh my God, what have I done? And I don't know why, but she looks very much like sort of modern day Margot Kidder to me with the, just that kind of wide-eyed insanity and all this stuff that's... Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm going to get in trouble for saying that, but <laughs> it just looks like a very Margot Kidder kind of look, the facial expression. In, the, in these pages, I get distracted by her legs and don't look at her face so much. She's hitched up her dress so that she can run through the fortress, so she has it all tied to the side like an 80s um, T-shirt. Um, but, but yeah, she does have kind of a weird face there. Not very flattering. No, not a bit. But happily, Superman's not dead, and he's made her a present. Yeah, he's got very good news for her, in fact. Happy birthday, Lois. You have superpowers and a costume to wear that can withstand the punishment that you're about to put it through. And it's just a great... I don't know as I'd go so far as to say it's a cliffhanger, but the story definitely doesn't really end here, and it picks up in the next issue. But this is a good little breaking point, because it's really hard to read this page and then not immediately want to know, oh man, what what comes next? Mm-hmm. And so, and in fact, on that note, the cover for issue number three is once again a very silver agey type of thing where you have Lois, you know, loud and proud in her kind of super outfit here with Clark opening his his own shirt and he's kind of mystified and bewildered by uh, Lois having powers and a costume, which obviously makes no kind of story sense, really. But whatever, it's a good cover. And honestly, I think that's that was kind of the 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 point of a lot of DC Silver Age covers. You know, were they did they make good cover images? And if the answer to that was yes, then to hell with story logic. We're running with it. It's like you were saying, <laughs> ago, right? And well, it fits in with the idea of the story that she really takes the lead on this, and he kind of has to play catch up with her her desires and everything. So he's like, he, the, the cover to me says that Superman's a little bit behind the eight ball and Lois is just, you know, striding forward and taking charge of what they're about to do. So it works for me. In fact, you know what? I'll be honest. All of these covers, you know, really do work for me and it just, it, it plays. I love it. And this, I think is actually one of the few that doesn't, maybe my memory's playing tricks on me, but I think this is one of the few covers that, doesn't have some kind of caption to it or some sort of, um, you know, if it was a web page, I would call it clickbait, but there's no buy bait or read bait for this, for this uh, cover like there was for issue two. Can you guess the secret of Superman's forbidden room? No, there's nothing like that here. It's just, it's a cool little cover image and I just really, I really dig it. So anyway, though, to get into the issue at hand, uh, in the at the end of the last issue, Superman gave uh, Lois a costume. At the top of this issue, he gives her a, a vial full of gold goo that basically gives her superpowers. And so after that, we're off to the races. It's back to Metropolis, where Metropolis is under attack by Kroll. Kroll. 
That is I've a comic book before. monster nickname. Or, or that's a comic book monster name if I've ever heard it. Crawl. Yeah, just looking it up to see if to see if he's something else I should know, but no, it looks like it's just an all-star Superman thing. So yeah, giant red monster tearing things up. His name is Krull. That sounds like a, a 1970s issue of Superman to me. Ditto. Superman and Lois arrive not even in the nick of time, if anything, a little bit too late, because which one is that? This is Samson. Samson. Uh, throws Kroll not only into outer space but through a an orbit uh, an orbiting satellite. Oh, yeah, no, I hate it when that happens. And ends up not being uh, very good for Kroll. Superman manages to save him, but at that point the damage really is kind of done, or at least it could have been done. Uh, but uh, not long after all this stuff happens, Atlas arrives on the scene, and it's clear that they're both there to uh, horn in on Superman's uh, territory with Lois. And I don't know how detailed it you really want to get with this. this. No, um, I think it's worth mentioning that Superman uh, did run into Samson and Atlas a couple of times at least um, back in the day. So this isn't something that uh, Morrison is just making up. He's remembering stories that he's read and bringing them up. So the fact that Superman knows these guys is not unexpected. I do think it's worthwhile uh, to mention that we now have three mythical strongmen all walking around this story like like it's completely and perfectly normal. So it's just it's just great. And it's, um, yeah, and that's not only very true. It's also very intentional, and it's also intentional that Superman outwits and then later I, I don't know overpowers both of them we're getting ahead of ourselves in the story to say it but he has a dual arm wrestling contest where he pretty much fucks both of them up uh, that's probably the best way to put it he folds samson's arm backwards god it just hurts to even look at that geez that panel but it's like that moment from the fly which i've never seen oh Okay, so the original Jeff Goldblum fly movie from the, I guess, mid or late 80s, maybe maybe early 90s, uh, has a uh, very bad arm wrestling moment. Ooh. Well, um, and this is – there's a sense in which this is maybe the most disposable of the uh, 12 issues. I don't know. Basically, nothing it, here really happens that's crucial to the larger like, macro story that's that's being. Yeah, told. it sets up the notion of the twelve labors, mm -hmm. which I'm not even sure. Looking back through the story, exactly what each of the twelve labors is, but um, it does set up the idea that he's going to do twelve labors. But yeah, this is just an adventure. Well, okay, and here here may be a quibble because Superwoman Lois Lane now has superpowers, and so what does she spend the entire issue doing? Standing off to the side while supermen fight over her. Yeah. Um, that was actually going to be one of my notes since you mentioned it. Um, look, I don't want to sound you know all PC about it or, or anything like that, but even the Silver Age, when it would when there were stories where Lois would get powers and stuff, things happened. Now, yes, generally it was Lois trying to woo Superman and get her to marry him and all those kind of we think of them today as very kind of quaint fifties things, but you can't say that nothing ever happened, but here for all the difference it makes to the story there. And I guess the, the main conflict, the main plot of the, uh, of the issue, Lois could have powers or not have powers and it wouldn't make a damned bit of difference. Her having powers doesn't really, 
it doesn't really become a factor too much of anything except for that one and it, it's a it's a gorgeous freaking page don't get me wrong but except for that one brief moment where Sup- she and superman are uh making out on the moon mhm and i kind of have to wonder if we're to assume that's all they did but anyway um except <laughs> for that one little moment really not too much of anything comes from lois having powers in this story and it just kind of it feels to me like if you're going to do a story where lois gets powers then let her do something. Yeah, well, and not just that, dude. Take it to the limit, man. Ride that thing to to the natural conclusion. But it's just like the minute she gets powers, the book becomes a sausage fest, and it's nothing but arm wrestling and monsters and all this stuff. And now Lois being when she maybe least is is maybe least vulnerable. Now she's oh she is the consummate damsel in distress when she should be driving the story. And look, whatever. Far be it from me to criticize grant morrison too much it just kind of feels like this was a lost opportunity here it was and she even has to be rescued yes from from the from the god pharaoh lion person whatever it is um because you know the crux of this particular element of the plot is that samson and atlas have stolen this magical necklace from i don't know the the fucktards of eternity and you know (laughs) they've they've come back looking for it Right. And so Samson and Atlas were actually on the run and they wanted to trick Superman into helping them. And so they put Lois Lane in danger in order to do that. But this is the story where Lois Lane has fucking superpowers. So why are we taking this idea of Lois Lane having superpowers and the idea of Samson and Atlas wanting to put her in jeopardy to trick Superman into helping them? Why are those the same story? And literally the only thing I can think of that that comes out of this that deals with the larger plot apart from arguably the 12 labors is that we now get our first bullet bulletproof um, confirmation that big shit is on the horizon. Because again, I don't know what the page numbers are for the um, individual issues, but on page 69 in volume one of my trade, it's um, the third panel. What's, what's the page look like? Well, it's basically the uh, Daily Planet headline, Superman Dead. And okay. this this comes from the future. Now, it's very unlikely. I guess possible, but it just seems very unlikely that Samson would have would have uh, forged this somehow, falsified it. And if it's from the future, well, if it was this thing where, you know, Superman's going to die like 50 years from now, he could just say so. Well, this is from 50 years from today, so it's got nothing to do with right now. The fact that Superman doesn't immediately, you know, debunk that, he kind of says something. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, sets up maybe goings-on in issue number 11. I don't want to get too much into that just yet, but it does set up goings-on in issue number 11. And it does say that, you know what, this is maybe the first time I think the readers got that there's something big brewing here. And it's not going to be uh, a, the kind of... I don't know, open and shut story that I think a lot of ongoing continuity tends to be. What do you think? Yeah, because, again, if if you don't know where the story is going because you're just reading it when the issues come out, you don't know the ultimate purpose of the story, you automatically think every single time every hero's life ever comes into jeopardy in the back of your mind, you're not wondering whether they're going to get out of it. You want to know how they're going to get out of it. And that's what makes the story worth reading. Um, 
<clears throat> so this is where you're saying we said he was going to die. You you might want to take that seriously as you're reading this book. Right. And to me, to kind of amplify what you're saying, if that was the only time in this issue that we saw that newspaper, even then maybe you could justify uh, ignoring it or, or at least rationalizing it. The fact that because how many times have heroes changed the future? You know, at least thirty-five thousand. Last I checked. Right. Superman being probably one of the, uh, a big contributor to all that. This is the last thing that we see in this in this issue. It's almost as if to say, yeah, Superman's really clever. You know, the way that he freed Lois from uh, the Pharaoh monster, the Egyptian underworld guy, whatever you want to call it, Ra, whatever his name is. Yes, that, there's that, and it's cool, but. Number one, there's still the issue of Superman dying, and then number two, it actually gives us new information by saying it's Clark Kent that wrote the article. So now we have, again, reinforcement of an upcoming plot, and then the wrinkle that the person who's just died is the guy who's writing the story. So what the fuck's going on? Right. So, um, and, th and that could actually swing your pendulum the other day. Okay, well, how is Clark Kent writing the article if Superman's dead, huh? So he's not really going to die, right, right, right? And so you just don't really know where this is going. Right. And, but this was the first indication, this issue, I remember reading and I remember thinking, okay, I don't, I wasn't quite ready to say, you know what, if I got all bets are off, but this was one of those things where I started thinking, you know what, there is something that's, that, that's going to happen here. And this isn't going to be just another story, you know, for better or for worse, something is going to happen that comes out of this and I need to pay attention. And speaking of paying attention, I really do wish the writer, and this is my idea of a segue, going into issue number four, I really wish the writers of the All-Star Superman movie had paid attention to the details, because like uh, John and I mentioned a while ago, here we get a pretty, uh, on a page, well, 83, but um, in my trade, but page one of the issue, a pretty... Uh, very well, a pretty good explanation for why Jimmy would dress and drag at the bottom of page 83. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't fucking exist in the movie. Right. And so, and I think if I'm not really mistaken, this may actually be the first time that we see Jimmy in the movie. And it's, it's just this kind of weird, unexpected sort of curveball moments that it makes absolute sense. If you read the comic it makes freaking no sense. If you if you just watch the movie and that's your only familiarity with the – in fact, I'll go another – I'd go a step further and say there's an argument that the all-star Superman movie wouldn't really entice me to read the comic because you get kind of oddball, out-of-nowhere moments like that that are f kind of funny when you read them fall flat because of the absolute lack of context in the film and – it's just – it's a real weakness to it. But I guess to get into the blood and guts of the issue, the cover, again, it's uh, it's yet another Silver Age homage. Is it over for the Superman Olsen team? Superman's turned evil! Dun, dun, dun. Then on top of all that, there's dialogue on the cover too. And that was kind of starting to become a sort of trendy thing to do. People were more likely to put dialogue on comic book covers back then or at least Superman comic book covers. So you've got Jimmy there saying, if I can't get these crazy future weapons to work, I'm dead. And so is everyone else. 
and nobody says shit like that to themselves, but it works because it's a comic book. And so <laughs> anyway, and so the story goes, and this is really Jimmy's kind of showcase issue. And to me, again, it's another, it's another just kind of reminder to us that he's not only man of action. He's not only shagging boots with Lucy Lane, which is probably cool enough all on its own. But he has a real career. He's not the cub reporter anymore. He's not just a photographer. He's a respected writer. He's he's got a flourishing career now, as as a Daily Planet staff writer. It's Grant Morrison has matured him in life, and in his career. He's he's got he's a very creative writer, and he's he's got a successful column. And it's just it's it's another reminder that this is. This is taking place further ahead in the timeline. And you know what? Maybe it's a mistake to say it's, you know, 30 years, you know, along in the timeline, but it's definitely progressed. I don't know what easy 10 or 15 years because Perry lo really looks like he's getting up there. He does. He, he's definitely looking older. Um, you know, I was just thinking because while uh, while we were getting into the issue, because what's going to happen is Superman's during Mr. Evil because of Black Kryptonite. And that was something that wasn't used in the comics until after it had been used in Smallville. And the one story where it was used was Supergirl. Right. Whenever she get, turns evil as part of the Superman Batman series. And that reminded me that there's no Supergirl in this story. So of all the Silver Age things that are amazingly awesome to leave out of the story, we get no Supergirl. We get nods to crypto. We get, actually we get appearances from crypto, but no Supergirl. So that's uh, that's sort of a, a random tangent. That doesn't really connect into what we're what we're talking about. But it, it is one of those things that I just thought of. That's like, huh? I like Supergirl. Where is she? But maybe he just didn't want to distract attention from the main story. I don't know. Maybe she's off at college. I have no idea. Well, that sort of leads into something. It wasn't a major part of my notes, but it it did. That was actually going to be my my answer to that. I was going to say that. He left Batman out. He left basically the larger DC universe out. And it really is specifically Superman's story. And maybe the attitude was if we bring Supergirl into this, there's a certain amount of attention we have to pay. There's a certain amount of story that she's going to have to carry. There's a certain amount of development she's going to have to get. It's just all we have are 12 issues and... It, it it would be too big of a side uh, of a side trip. So maybe it's interesting to go off chasing rabbits like that. But it, it, you know, if you have like a twenty four issue series, but we've only got twelve. And anyway, it, it, I wanted to mention it, but it wasn't one of those things I was going to harp on too much. And that makes sense. Although, yeah, because you leave Batman out, and the in the world's finest comics, Superman, Batman team ups were a major component of Silver Age. They sort of are part of the things that help define when Superman's Silver Age starts being developed as the Batman Superman team up startup. Um, and there's there's I think the Legion time bubble is the only nod of the Legion that we get in the story. If I had seen Supergirl on the chessboard, I wouldn't complain. Right. Right, but it does kind of raise the question of whether or not she even exists in this universe. That's a question you don't have to ask about Batman or Brainiac or any of the rest. So, yeah, I totally understand which is where you're coming from here. But to the story at hand, the high concept behind all of this is that uh, Dr. Quinnum is basically letting Jimmy be uh, the director of Project for a day because that's the name of his uh, – of his. Uh, 
a Daily Planet column. It's called For a Day. Basically, Jimmy spends an entire day doing something or other. And for his column this time, he's the head of project. Now, okay, okay. So from a from a comic book plotting standpoint, I, I, I can buy into this. But from a, you know, let's pretend that we're in this universe standpoint. Are you really going to put Jimmy fucking Olsen in charge of your hyper scientific, you blink the wrong way, you could explode a planet organization i mean does that really what you want to do well to be fair all we really see jimmy do is just kind of tour their facilities and then the story springs out of an accident that he has about which i have a little something something to say but uh you know he really i don't think he was really supposed to do what he what he did i think the the whole idea of him being it's basically i think supposed to be sort of a ceremonial title that he had it wasn't he wasn't supposed to do all the stuff that he does in the story, but because he almost falls into that huge vat of who's he what's us, mm-hmm. that's ultimately where everything else in the story comes from. And otherwise, I think he basically would have had the distinction of being, you know, the project director, but he really wouldn't have been. He would have been, basically it would have been in name only. You know, he wasn't really going to be able to do anything. He basically would have gotten to peek under the skirt a little bit of everything that, you know, project has going, but it wasn't going to be, he wasn't going to, no one was really giving him Dr. Quinnum's authority is what I'm saying. So, okay. But there well, is, before he falls into the super heavy gravity, he passes by a door that says, do not open until doomsday. Did I miss something? Does this have any impact or import in the story or is it just Grant Morrison and like acknowledging the idea of doomsday and moving on? thought the syringe thingy that he get, that he gets i thought that's where it came from you know where he, ba- he basically oh of more- course because he's gonna okay okay so yeah so okay the vault contains a highly dangerous experimental stem cell accelerator designed to transform a soldier into an unstoppable killing machine right okay so it's, it's an alternative origin for the same concept that we get in post-crisis world right I that's think, interesting yeah uh, actually, I, and it works for me, too, because you get a nice, easy, convenient origin for Doomsday that doesn't require an entire three-issue miniseries to tell. So <laughs> not taking shots at Dan Jurgens. I'm just saying, you know, anyway. So, Well, you know, the, but just to just to go off on, you know, our 57th tangent, that was something that Dan Jurgens was able to do. You know, having he and his crew settled into the world of Superman, they were able to spin these long, elaborate, complex origins that were built out of subplots and grew organically. And so Brainiac even starts out as a as a as a circus guy. And then ultimately over like three or four or five stories told over the space of two or three or four years, he becomes the Brainiac, you know, more familiar with what we know. And Supergirl, the, the post-crisis Supergirl, there's no, no, no effing way that you could tell that girl's origin in four panels at the start of a comic. No way. Yeah, I, I agree. There's <laughs> no no, but 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 this does take the doomsday idea and boil it down into one paragraph that you can stick in a speech balloon and keep on going. Right, and without even ha- well, and I guess maybe part of what of why it works is that it's actually part of the the major reveal of this uh, of this thing. You don't even have to show it here because it gets revealed later. But well, anyway. And also, this is how Silver Age things were done. You want to have a concept, you want to bring it in. You have one person give two speech balloons of exposition that explains the concept for the story, and it it now it works, and you keep on going. Right. Yeah, God, that just works for me. Okay. Um, next, this is a sort of minor quibble. I freely admit that. But 
it's page 89 in my trade. It's the uh, bit where Jimmy falls into the vat of pink suds. Super heavy gravity soap suds. Yeah, there you go. The very last uh, panel on that page, if you look at Jimmy's face, and really maybe all of the art there, but definitely Jimmy's face, it just doesn't look like it was drawn by Frank Whiteley to me. I There's just something about it. I don't know what it is, but that just does not look like Frank Whiteley's art to me. So that's not good. It's not bad. It's just an observation. So take it for whatever you think that's worth. Yeah, it didn't really stick out to me one way or the other. Um, this part of the story just kind of confuses me, and I read it, and Superman saves, and we keep on going. Right. And honestly, yeah, basically everything that happens up to this point is a way to to expose Superman to black kryptonite. And so what is interesting, though, is that this is his first exposure to black kryptonite, and it works differently here. It's got different properties here than it does Smallville, where in Smallville it basically separates a kryptonite – Still never really understood this concept entirely, but it basically separates a Kryptonian from his Kryptonian half and his human half. So whatever. Um, Something like that. Yeah. Um, oh, believe me, I'm going to be talking about that in my Smallville retrospective eventually. But meh. So basically it causes the junkyard scene of Superman 3 to happen. Pretty much. And honestly, even if if that had been what had happened, well, whatever, I don't know. So – um, but basically, it's a chance for uh, Superman to go on a rampage and then for, of all people, Jimmy fucking Olsen to shut him down. And what works for me about this is the fact that, you know, Jimmy, he doesn't – I mean, yes, he overpowers Superman, but it's because he first uses his wits to his to his advantage, right? So this is a Superman who is so completely drunk on his own power – that he doesn't even take Jimmy uh, seriously as a threat. He's not using the typical, you know, good judgment that we all tend to associate with Superman. And that's why Jimmy is ultimately able to win. He injects himself with the Doomsday compound, basically becomes Doomsday, beats Superman to the floor, and that's basically the end of the issue. Superman's grateful that it happened once the effects of Black Kryptonite wore off. But here again, you see why this guy is worthy of being Superman's friend. I mean, this is the kind of thing that he's willing to do. He's willing to go up against a full frickin' powered Superman to save the day. And honestly, I... And, and conceivably, possibly give his life to do it. Right. He doesn't know that he's going to get healed up. No, he doesn't. Yeah, there's no reason to think... To, well, at least no reason to assume his own survival in all of this. And it, it just... It plays really well. And... There's also the silliness of, you know, as Superman's – well, Superman and Jimmy both are coming down from their respective ordeals. They both get um, – they they're both offered free tickets to the Broadway smash Frankenstein on ice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's just so perfect. And, well, you, you know, mentioned um, how this is the first time that Superman's ever encountered Black Kryptonite, and it occurred to me why this is the first time that the end of Superman's history, why he hasn't encountered Black Kryptonite yet – because it didn't exist in the Silver and Bronze Age. It's a creation of the year 2000-something, and, and so the Superman that Grant Morrison is working with here has never seen it before. Well, and you know what? I, w I was actually going to save that for the end of uh, the show, but since we've tangented so frickin' many times already, 
to what extent do you think we should regard this as the the Silver Age Superman? I mean, is this the Silver Age Superman, like sort of an alternate ending for the Silver Age Superman? Or is this Grant Morrison's Superman, and he just happens to have a lot of Silver Age trappings to it? I would say that there could be an analogy drawn, you know, like in in, 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 in grade school English class when they ask you to like you compare two things and say what how does you know these other two things compare um the earth 2 superman and the golden age superman are not the same thing and yet the earth 2 superman uses trappings of the golden age superman things that people tend to associate with it and makes its own character out of that i would say that this is kind of that of the silver bronze age superman it's not exactly the same thing, but it certainly takes everything that is in your head from the Silver and Bronze Age and uses that as the basis for this this uh, storyline here. I see. Okay, no, fair enough. Fair that's enough. how I read it anyway. Okay. Well, and honestly, I think there's an argument that's maybe the most sensible way to read it. But to me, there's a deepening to this story that if you read it as – Base, and I don't really view whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow as, as the canonical end of the pre-crisis Superman to begin with. Mm-hmm. So to me, that was never in continuity in the first place. And But certainly if – okay, so certainly if the crisis on Infinite Earths had never happened and that continuity had continued to exist and gone through the storytelling shifts and updates that have happened with comics – it could conceivably have gotten to this point. I could see that they, they, they make little subtle tweaks to how the stories work through the 80s and 90s and 2000s. And so that that continuity could come to here and end. Right. I can certainly see that being the case. That I, this is a hypothetical ending to that era if it had never stopped. And that's actually uh, sort of how I've come to view it too. So, yeah, no, that, that works for me. I just uh, – just wanted to ask now my recollection of it is that this this chapter of the story in general was cut out of uh, all-star superman is my mind playing tricks on me there or i'm pretty sure you're right because jimmy olsen has almost nothing to do in that film and i think that besides walking into because his drag scene is the first scene of him in the film whenever the superman's up there you know doing his son save, I right. think that's when Jimmy Olsen walks in and drag. So he really doesn't have anything to do in that film. And I'm pretty sure this episode is, this chapter is completely gone. Right. Okay. And I don't know if that necessarily comes at the detriment to the story or not, but it nevertheless, it needs to be said. So now we pulled something out of the Samson Atlas fight, mm-hmm. even though that story was basically tangential and unimportant. What comes out of this chapter? Mm-hmm. Besides the fact that now the moon has a permanent I Love Lucy scar in it. <laughs> right, and that was actually going to be another pop culture thing I intended to mention. But um, honestly, for this, apart from setting up the fact, Jimmy pulls a – he basically does something that takes a lot of balls in issue number 12. Um, basically in standing up to uh, Lex Luthor. And the and so only thing I can, huh? So it sets 
up the fact that he's the sort of person who would do that. Right, and that, that, and even that, it feels like I'm sort of reaching, but that's about the most I could, I could really come, I could really come up with. I mean, well, you know, if this, assuming I'm right, and this was left out of the story, this, honestly, this was a good candidate for it because there's really nothing. Well. Sheesh, I don't know. If you could consider this important, like just desperately important information, but the only thing I can really think of is that it outright says that uh, that a project tinkers in genetic engineering. Now, I don't know if that was explicit in previous chapters or if it's something that is really only made concrete here, but it is made concrete here. And that sort of plays into the very last moment of the story where even if Superman doesn't come back, Project has has it all under control. And I don't know, it, it, fuck, it, even that it ser- seriously feels like stretching. I, I, I'll, I'll go with you on the fact that it feels worthwhile and feels like a stretch at the same time. Right. Because... <laughs> um, the only other thing here is, you know, that that Morrison as a writer wanted to do something with Jimmy because maybe he loves Jimmy. Um, and I could I can go with that. I don't know if the fact that Superman as as a black kryptonite Superman starts to delve into Bizarro speak, if that could be seen as a setup for um, the Bizarro chapters that come later. But, yeah, there's really. Let's just say it's the genetics thing. The fact that Project Cadmus deals with genetics and they deal with with artificially creating life, that that's something that hasn't really been said yet, and that's kind of important for the final denouement, so we can use that. I'll go with you on that. I'll certify it. You want my stamp? Go right ahead. Yeah. All right. Um, Now, there are actually two other things here that – and again, maybe it's quibbling, but wow, there is actually more pop culture in here than I originally remembered. Uh, We get two more uh, on page 104, the very last page of issue number four, where – First off, Lucy Lane makes reference to selling uh, selling her Mars rock on eBay. And, okay. And then, uh, of course, there's I Love Lucy, which I, I realize it's a play on words here. But at the same time, you really can't ignore the obvious, you know, Lucille Ball thing. Ricky! <laughs> God, I hate that fucking woman. Anyway, so wretched, wretched beast of a... Anyway, so... That leads into issue number five, arguably one of the best of this uh, entire run. And again, it was another indicator. We're getting as we are to nearly the halfway point, at least of our run through of all 12 issues, that there is considerable meat to this story, a lot of uh, character development. And the cover, it's a kind of unusual thing of... uh, Lex, yeah, Lex and Clark in a in a prison jumpsuits, surrounded by people with uh, screwdrivers and wrenches, hammers, knives, what look like broomsticks or lead pipes or something. And obviously, the obvious like the uh, obvious conclusion here is that they're under attack, and somehow Lex is going to protect Clark. Sounds like a recipe for a Silver Age cover to me. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. Lex Luthor's the bad guy. Clark has to hide behind him. And yeah, and Lex Luthor's fighting other bad guys. What's up with that? Why is Lex Luthor defending Clark Kent when Clark Kent is secretly Superman? 
buy this issue and find out. Yeah, so exactly. And uh, the setup for the story is actually simple enough. Basically, Lex is on trial, during which he's compared to Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, Al Capone, Adolf Hitler. And, and okay, I, that in and of itself is a nod to the Silver Age. Yes, it is. Because he has in his – I forget exactly what he calls it. He calls it a fortress of evil. Mm. But he actually has a base that has statues of these guys. And A, it's set up in an incontinuity story. And then B, in the very famous Silver Age Death of Superman story, Luthor actually takes Superman to this base and they see the statues again. Right. So, um, but he actually has statues of Attila and Genghis and Al and Adolf. Adolf might not be on there because that might have been a little bit too timely at the time. But because um, you, you figure readers of the late fifties, early sixties, the world war, the world war was only fifteen years ago. So, right. And I think Adolf Hitler's uh, reputation in history. I don't know if that's necessarily the way his contemporary, well, contemporaries, if people of the time. If they regarded him the same way that we do today, I don't want to, again, don't want to go too far off topic, but that seems to be the name of the game in this episode. Yeah, um, I, I decided not to ask you to, to tangent on Lucy Lane because I was, I was going to have a rant about that, but I decided to keep it under my hat. <laughs> oh, well, there you have it. Um, but basically, I think he was regarded as, and you know what, maybe I'm wrong, but it just, I, when, I, when I hear people, um, or hear people, when I read like sort of contemporaneous accounts of what, people really thought back in World War II, really Adolf Hitler was, he was one of three. When you come right down to it, you had Emperor mm -hmm. uh, Hirohito, and you also had uh, Benito Mussolini. Now, mm -hmm. maybe Adolf Hitler was thought of as being you know, sort of first among equals there, but I don't think he was then regarded as the monster that we think of think of him as today you know i don't know i think he it was it, he was a world dominating force that needed to be stopped and he was enslaving europe and that needed to be stopped but i think in the after effect of the war with the holocaust and all of that coming out the the idea of him being an evil man has has is possibly a concept that's grown since the day right and i kind of have to attribute that to it's very possible in my mind, that people didn't really know everything that the that the that the guy did. You know, I don't know if if the Holocaust was necessarily common knowledge, or if it was the ex, the exact extent of what happened in the Holocaust. If that was as well known then as it is now, so I really think it was. I think you got, I think you have something there, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, it's just it's it, it's one of those things. Again, it's man talk about quibbling but it's just it's one of those things that i've always kind of wondered about but anyway to get into the uh, the issue itself uh lex is obviously he's sentenced uh to prison um and uh clark basically uh is there to interview the dead man walking i mean this is going to be if not lex's very last interview with the press one of the last and what's interesting is that you can kind of draw a sort of parallel um between lex's acceptance of his fate in a sense at least his calmness about his fate versus superman's calmness i mean you know there's a, there's a sense in which you kind of want to compare them because superficially they are very similar it's only later 
that you find out that Lex has actually very good reasons for being so just placid about it, whereas mm -hmm. Superman truly is heroic about it. it. His stoicism is not isn't faked at all. It's it's grounded in just an acceptance of himself, of his world, of reality, and. So there is a sort of counterpoint here that you could that you could make between the two characters and it just it plays really well that again on the surface they both meet their fates very calmly it's just that Lex has a trump card to play that's all so I'm looking back through the issue and through issue one to see exactly if we can get any hints of what Lex Luthor's life is in this particular universe. Because in Silver Age and Bronze Age, Lex Luthor lived in prison. Right. And he only got out to do the hijinks of that particular issue. Right. Um, at least in the Silver Age. I, I, to be upfront, my Bronze Age reading is almost nil. I just know that it's an extension of the same continuity. I just haven't gotten there yet because I've read everything from 1938 to 1962, but have not yet gotten to the 1970s. Um, so my, you know, I'm pretty sure he lives in prison throughout all those years and just gets out to do whatever crimes are for that particular story, as opposed to post-crisis, where Lex Luthor is an upstanding citizen. And does everything behind the scenes that's evil and, you know, machination wise. And so whenever he's standing in court here, I'm trying to figure out if this is like the one trial of Lex Luthor or if this is the 20th trial and we're finally bringing all these crimes to a head and giving you the death sentence instead of just letting you, you know, rot to come back and, and play another day. Well, um, the the Lex Luthor of at least the Bronze Age, he's not necessarily out to destroy the entire world. He he's out specifically to take Superman down. And there's actually an issue of Superman. I'm blanking on the uh, the issue number, but Lex thinks he succeeded in destroying all life on Earth, and he's the last man standing. And it destroys him. And so what you basically what you take away is that. He's not – he's not really he, – he may do like some really horrible things, but you know the idea of, of uh, gleefully killing as many people as possible, that's definitely the Joker's uh, turf. That's not – Lex Luthor has never really uh, subscribed to that, and right. that's one of the crucial differences. And all of this is a very freaking long-winded way of saying – it wouldn't surprise me if this if this was maybe his 100th trial, but this is the first time that, number one, they maybe had anything like really credible on him, and then number two, that he was on trial for something this serious, that maybe before he'd done a whole lot of property damage and trying to kill Superman, but when you come right down to it, that's really just attempted murder. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to minimize the seriousness of that crime. But compared to what he did to Superman in issue number one, this seems like the greater offense to me. And I think that's one of the reasons why they just throw the fucking book at him because, you know, dude, you crossed the line this time, you know? You really did. This is just the one step too far. Yeah. Now, yeah. Clark does describe him as the world's most notorious criminal scientist. So I'm guessing that, yeah, he, he definitely has a history. Right. And oddly enough, one of the things that I kind of wondered about was – you know, is when I was reading this issue was if this really is the amalgam that 
Grant Morrison, this version of Superman, this story really is the amalgam of Superman lore that Grant Morrison wants us to think that it is. Is it reasonable to think that at some point in this Lex Luthor's history, he actually was CEO of um, LexCorp? And I don't know. There's really nothing to hang that on either way, but it's just he seems to wear a lot of business suits for a guy who is a deranged scientist, you know? So He carries a lot of dignity in a way that corporate bigwigs do. Yeah, but maybe random scientist guy who's just out to get Superman and tinkering in his lab. And sure, he certainly had some crime boss status from time to time, but maybe not quite as much as what the, I mean. He's Lex Luthor has never struck me as Al Capone. No, he's not the head of gangs. Sure, he gets people to follow him and he gets people to do his dirty work for him, but he's never been like. I am so important in the criminal empire that people fear my name. I don't get that from the pre-crisis Lex Luthor. No, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's more that I haven't read, but I just, I just don't get that. Well, yeah. And he's just, he never struck me as being the, the callous sadistic killer. Like if, yeah, I think it was Denny O'Neill who once said that, you know, the Joker might kill you because he doesn't like your necktie. But he may also like you. He may also let you live because he does like your necktie. You know, it really human life really does mean that 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 little to him. Right. Whereas Lex Luthor, as much as anything, he's got something to prove. And killing a you know it, millions of innocent people isn't gonna accomplish help him accomplish his ends. And so he's 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 basically got a I don't know God complex maybe. Mm-hmm. He just his ego cannot abide the fact that su- somebody like Superman could possibly exist in the same world as him. Any world where he's not number one top dog is not a world that basically this world ain't big enough for the, for both of us is what right. it comes down to. And I fuck, dude, since we're on the subject, that's one of the things about the Bronze Age Lex Luthor that just fucking works for me. You know, when he was reinvented, uh, reimagined. I think it was by Elliot, not Elliot, by uh, Carrie, Carrie Bates. And, um, oh, it was like 1981, 82. When he There's, got the green armor? Yeah. And I, I want to say it was around then. I think that's when Lexor, the planet Lexor, became, uh, came into continuity. Lexor has been around throughout the Silver and Bronze Age, but they may have let it sit for a while and brought it back then. Oh, okay, fair enough. It's always been telling to me that, you know, Lexor kind of represents everything that Lex Luthor everything that Lex Luthor says that he wants. I'm so sorry. I thought I muted that. I didn't mean to blow that in your ear. Hey, no problem. No problem. <laughs> uh, Lexor seems to it represents everything that Lex Luthor says that he wants, right? Uh, it's a world without Superman. It's a world where he's regarded as uh, you know, scientist extraordinaire. He's he, uh, he's the greatest thing there's ever been, the greatest man to ever live. It's everything he wants, but he hates Superman so fucking much. He cannot leave Earth until Superman is dead first. Even though this world is, on paper, everything this guy wants, he just can't let the hate go. And to me, that's who Lex Luthor is. He's got a grudge. And say whatever you want about the Joker, he doesn't have a grudge. He's got a joke. And that's a completely different thing. 
and Lex isn't necessarily out to uh, lay waste to everybody. He just he he's got a grudge. He needs to work work things out with Superman. He's not necessarily out though to kill anybody who gets in his way. You know. Mm-hmm. So anyway, talk about a hell of a digression, but. Well, no, it's kind of you know the underpinnings of this particular story. Um, although I am not as much a fan of this chapter as I am of other chapters. And it's not because of Lex Luthor. The Lex Luthor and Clark interview at the beginning of the story, I think, is great reading. Right. But then once the actual plot gets underway, I feel like the plot of the story gets in the way of the treatise on Lex Luthor that we're trying to do. I kind of feel like this this particular chapter um, works against itself to one extent or another. Mm. Um, I don't necessarily feel like we need the parasite in all this. I don't also think that we necessarily need as many jabs at Clark Kent that Luthor seems to enjoy throwing his way. For a guy who seems to hate Superman as being like his main one passion, he also doesn't have a whole lot of respect for Clark either. He just, you know, throws a lot of comments at him. Um, but, but yeah, the, this this particular chapter I have mixed feelings on because I, I like a lot of it, but I also think that it has some some issues with the way the story flows towards the second half. Right. Um, and honestly, I to me, things like that really do kind of come down to preference. I mean, there's no factual argument I can make that, you know, I don't know, to uh, – to disagree with you but what i will say is that it it is kind of a funny moment that uh there is a little bit of parody here lex puts a monkey in a superman suit (laughs) i shall repeat that lex puts a monkey in a superman suit right and it's like for one i mean okay there's the obvious silver age thing of uh, Beppo the super monkey that's being maybe arguably shouted out here but when you come right down to it this is how Lex sees Superman or at least this is how Lex wants people to think he sees Superman right mm-hmm. and it just I don't know it's just the I guess the sort of double entendre to that it just it sort of works for me I like that so um, there is there is actually a very kind of neat moment though uh, something that actually does come to light here that affects the uh, the larger story the third to last page has two really neat moments or three actually really neat moments um, in the third panel on the page when the goth chick whose names I shown I, I shall not even attempt to pronounce shows up um, that on that third page or third panel at this point, Clark has pretty much come to accept that there's nothing he can say to pull Lex back. It's done. It's over. And he's just – he makes this this face of resignation, of, of defeat. He knows that he's lost except for a second. And, I, and that's actually the first thing, just that face he makes. It just – I feel so – just can't help but kind of just empathize, uh, sympathize with the guy, you know? Right. But then there's a second moment where Clark just kind of loses his shit for just a minute, right? He's not wearing his glasses. He makes eye contact with Lex and just basically says, dude, come back to reality here, okay? You are going to die. 
get your act together. And again, I mean, this is the moment where Clark's mask slips and Lex can't even see it. You know, he is so convinced of his own superiority over Clark. He doesn't even understand that he's looking his enemy eyeball to eyeball. And that really does work for me. But third, and arguably most powerful of all, this is where it comes out. I think this is the first gold-plated confirmation that Clark has gotten that Lex is the one who's responsible for everything that's happened. I reserve the right to be wrong on that. I, I don't think that that element has come up at all before. I mean, we as the readers saw it happen. We saw them in, uh, capture Lex as he was, you know, controlling the thing. But as far as Superman knows, he was fighting some roided out monster around the sun and he saved the people and they got him in trouble. I think that this is a big deal, which is maybe why um, as soon as he says that Clark becomes very subdued. He's gone from shouting and spitting in Luthor's face to huddling in the boat. And the only line he has after that uh, one, you know, news bomb from Luthor is, you can't prove this. Right. Um, so, yeah, and then Nastalthia takes him off with her, you know, scantily clad self. Right. And, man, she's just really not wearing a whole lot, is she? Well, it's kind of funny because she actually is. It's just cut in all the right places. The only thing showing are her hips and her shoulders. Right, I know, but it's just so suggestive to look at. <laughs> and um, goth chicks. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> Children of the 90s. We can't, we, we, we can't um, resist them, can we? No, we can't. And, you know, I think geeks are especially susceptible to that. And I've got a very geeky explanation as to why. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You may not want to hear it, but yeah, I do. Lay it on me. I'll, 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 you know, I'll take it. I'll see what happens. Ursa. Makes sense. Okay. From, from, from Superman. Yeah. For a second when you said Ursa, my brain thought Lursa, as in Lursa and Bator, which is a whole different corner of Geekum. But, um, but yeah, okay, so... We're all secretly lusting after Superman too, and so whenever girls dress like I, I can, well, I can I, see some logic. Yeah, well, I mean, she's let's face it, Sarah Douglas wasn't exactly the healthiest looking chick in the world to begin with. She had that sort of it's very British, I've noticed, very a kind of clammy looking skin. It's very pale. So there's that. Her hair uh-huh. was, you know, dark and uh, very short. So there's that. She had a metric fuck ton of eyeliner. So there's that. She had the all black outfit with the spike heels going. So there's that. It's slit in all the right places. So there's definitely that. <laughs> and if you look at her her lipstick, it's not exactly fire engine. It's not black, but it's not really fire engine red. But it's that it's that like black tinged red. Right. That seemed to get really popular in the '90s as well. Right. And so the first time I really thought about it was after the big. Superman DVD uh, release, the first one from like 2001 or something like mm-hmm. that. It, it's around there. It's about then. And what ended up happening was I watched Superman 2, among other, among all the rest, but I'm really Superman 2 since fucking that's what we're talking about. Really for like the first time in, it had to have been 
at least five or six years during which maybe isn't it doesn't sound like it's that much but just keep in mind that's the period during which i sort of came of age just as a human as a person and you know gone through puberty and all that (laughs) and you know all i knew was that for some reason i couldn't explain it i kind of had a thing for goth chicks and i don't know why because it's not like Oh, look, those people are selling a fantasy, okay? I, I promise you, dude. Dating a goth chick is nothing like what you think it would be, or so I would assume. But yet right. I couldn't take my eyes off them whenever I would go to school and I'd see these really heavy goth, heavily gothed-out chicks you know, running around. And I just thought they were the hottest things on two legs. And I'm like, why? I don't understand. And so, anyway, rewatched Superman 2 years down the line. I'm like okay i understand now basically when i was a kid my view of women i guess i was sort of at a crossroads in my heterosexuality where my view of women could have been shaped either by sarah douglas or margot kidder under the circumstances i think i chose very wisely (laughs) so here we go well, either either you're right and one has shaped the other or they're both playing into the same weird parts of male sexuality that can't be explained. But I did run across a picture of Lois and Ursa together that I just sent you that I think epitomizes what you were saying earlier about that one bug-eyed Lois Lane panel from issue two. Right. I just sent you a link in the Skype chat window. Right. Well, let's let's have a look here if freaking the browser – here we go. All right. Uh-huh. Uh, right. Oh, yes, that's the one. Yeah, the moment when uh, Ursa comes up behind Lois. Let us take his favorite. That's, yeah. That is that moment. Okay, I would never have even thought. I just, God, I've seen that movie so many times now. I don't so, whether it was intentional photo reference or just a Lois image in his mind or whatever, that is definitely the look that Frank quietly portrayed in that issue. So, yeah, I, I will uh, put my stamp on that suggestion as well. Right, right, right. Oh, and since we're on the subject of Ursa. Black nail polish. I mean, come on. <laughs> you know, it's like, am I goth or not? You know, somebody should put her picture up on am I goth or not and just let the viewers decide. Right, right. Right. And, uh, you know, the, and the whole slitting of the sleeves from the shoulder to the wrists, yeah. I have no idea why she did that, but I'm in favor of it. Girls should do that more often. Absolutely. Hey, I'm in favor of them wearing that outfit more often. Especially <laughs> since you can kind of figure that of all people – Ursa seems like the type who'd go commando, so. <laughs> well, she did throughout the film, that's for sure. Okay, well, um, that I guess maybe we should bring the uh, the sausage fest to a close for a moment to, to not annoy too many of our female listeners, but hey. Yeah, you know. yeah, enough of the locker room talk, right? Right. All right. Well, that leads into the ex- the uh, precise halfway point of of this uh uh, series where we basically go back in time to Smallville with uh, issue number six entitled Funeral in Smallville. And it basically starts off in the past. In fact, I think pretty, I think all of this actually takes place in the past. Yeah, the chronology of this is a little bit weird because it's not in line with the rest of the Superman story. This is all back in the day. And, and the, the cover has Superman looking at the gravestone of Jonathan Kent, and then you open up, and he's standing right next to Jonathan Kent. So it kind of makes you have to figure it out. It's not it's not explicitly spelled out. And that's one thing that Grant Morrison does. He will give you enough information to figure things out 
without spelling things out as clearly as some other writers will, yeah. which annoys some people. Right. I kind of like, you know, like being made to think every now and then. Not regularly. I don't like thinking on a daily basis, but every now and then you can make me think. Well, I think there's a breed of uh, readers out there who they don't like to think. And you know what? Whatever, more power to you. Far be it for me to criticize anybody because there are a lot of things in life I don't want to have to think about in order to do. All right? So I'm not criticizing them. That having been said, there's another group of readers out there who don't want to have to study in order to follow a story. And I actually consider myself to be one of them. I don't feel like I should need to read uh, or rather have a working understanding of all of the different fucking laws of physics in order to follow this story about fictional characters that you're telling me. All right. Mm -hmm. Or know, you know, the ins and outs of obscure ancient myth or something. You know what I mean? And so the people who bristle at that, the, basically the, the more pretentious writers who think they're better than anything that they could – any uh, existing character or property they could possibly write about. I think that – I don't know if people are necessarily very good at articulating all of that, you know, putting it into words and everything. But I kind of wonder – if on some subconscious level, that's actually what they what they bristle at, that the superior uh, idea of someone putting a bunch of obscure bullshit that only they understand into a story, and then everyone kisses their balls over it because this is supposed to be intelligent writing. Well, no. Intelligent writing, to me, is writing a story that literally anybody can follow, but not necessarily everybody gets the same thing out of. So... Um, yeah, and there's a difference between using using jargon and stuff that, and, and subject matter that the normal person doesn't understand. But that that's that's one thing. Telling a story in a format that might take a couple or three read-throughs to really wrap your brain around that's a different kind of thing. And I think it's important to remember that comics are not a genre; they're a medium. And so, in the medium of comics. You can have stories as simple as three eggs and ham, mm -hmm. green eggs and ham, or you can have stories as complex as any college lit course might require. Right. And I think that sometimes Grant Morrison leans toward the latter. And are we to fault him that he's using a – what some might consider a lesser medium like comics to tell what some might consider a higher form of story? I don't think so. I don't think that's a bad thing. So having to think about a story and having to read it through a couple of times and maybe even you don't really get it until somebody else explains a certain aspect to you, I think that that's okay to have happen. It's not to everyone's taste. Well, that's that, fine. Well, no, we can't I, fault the guy for doing it. Mm -hmm. well, yeah, sorry, didn't we get... well, no, that, it's not that. I, I guess what I meant was you know, I don't mind having to think about things. In fact, you know what? I don't mind – having to not think. But I also don't mind having to think. That part doesn't bother me. What kind of pisses me off is that when a writer assumes esoteric knowledge of his audience, or worse yet, requires it, mm -hmm. and they're, they are out there in comics where if you don't know specific trivia of, I don't know, Renaissance art or something like that, or if you're not a big expert on the ins and outs of uh, marine biology or just whatever, you know, that you are now 
kind of removed from the story in a, in a way that you really shouldn't be, in a way that's just not appropriate. Yeah, that's not good storytelling. You have you have to you have to explain that shit. <laughs> right, and and that's really all it takes. You know, if what you're dealing with is so fucking complicated that you can't fit all of that into your story, either simplify your story or tell a different one. I don't know right. how else to put it. And anyway, so give the person what they need. And all of this is, man. One hell of a it really has nothing to do with this particular story. It's just that Jonathan Kent's here and it's not linear, so right. But <laughs> Let's all use of this that is the basis long... for a diatribe on storytelling, <laughs> right? But you know, it's just it's interesting to me that when I the first time I read this, even when I, and I'm not saying this, you know, just to build myself up or sound like I'm you know just so freaking ahead of the curve or something like that because really, and a lot when it comes to a lot of things, I'm actually quite stupid, but. It never crossed my mind that this was, even from the first page, taking place in the modern day. And I've gotten the impression from people who have read this, especially those that were reading them as the issues came out, they didn't exactly latch on to that right away. They needed, I guess, some time to realize, oh my gosh, this actually takes place in the past. I'm one of those people. But it also comes from the fact of the levels of knowledge I had about Superman at the times that I read this. Uh-huh. Um, because when I read this the first time, I was reading it as the writers making up the rules as he goes as far as what from Superman applies and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so whenever we got to Jonathan Kent standing in the farm, the fact that that's just the next Tuesday after issue five, okay, that that's how I read it. And I you know, was a little bit confused as things went along. Now, especially now that we're talking about it, realizing that this is like the culmination of the Superman that existed before Man of Steel, um, the fact that Jonathan Kent would be alive is, of course, not possible. This has to be earlier in the man's life. Right. So, yeah. Um, but it's, it's, like I said, it's not one of those things that's spelled out. There's no caption at the top that says 25 years earlier. Yeah, and right. But I think the difference, at least with you, is that I don't get the idea that you uh, burned this issue in effigy because you, it didn't exactly. I don't no, because by the end of the issue, you know what's going on. Right, but I've heard people – or read, I should say. I've never actually heard anybody do it, but I've read people online just – absolutely pillory this issue because it it doesn't have that little caption up at the top that says 25 years ago you know so you know i tend to think of it as to me if your story is good and understand there's a there's a limit to 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 which i i mean this but if you if, if the story you're telling is good there's really no wrong way to tell it and to me, the idea of not leading off with this, but saving this for issue six, is perfectly legitimate. And it, it it plays for me, especially since, you know, we're at a point in the series now where we need to start getting, it's not enough just to see a, a sort of Silver Age-ish type of Superman doing extremely uh, uh, her, uh, heroic things in, in spite of the fact that he's dying. We now actually need to start developing these characters. And with the past three issues, that's precisely what we've gotten. Jimmy was first, then it was Lex, and now it's Clark. And we can debate amongst ourselves, you know, how mandatory was it really for Jimmy to have basically an issue of his own? 
what we can't say though is that the character many of these characters aren't really ridiculously well developed and in fact this may even this little trend I, I just pulled out of my ass may actually go back even further than I thought because now that I think about it what was issue two except an exploration of Lois's character so now mm-hmm. it's Clark's turn and basically what we see is Clark's own hubris maybe his own I don't know eagerness is ultimately what's responsible for Jonathan Kent's death. And that's one of the things about Superman the movie that for as much as I love it has always just kind of bothered me. Here there's a perfectly rational cause for Clark to be res- not not responsible for Jonathan's death but helpless to prevent it. Yeah, absent from the fact. Right. Whereas in in Superman the movie, Clark was on the scene as Jonathan had his heart attack. And generally speaking, I don't really know how common it is for people to fall down dead from heart attacks. I think my understanding, or at least my assumption would be that that's the sort of thing that actually takes time. You know, you need time to die from a heart attack. And that wouldn't be all that big a deal, except that this is the very next scene. The death of Jonathan Kent is the very next fucking scene after we see Clark outrun a fucking train. So all these all these things he can do, all these powers, and he couldn't even save them? Well, no, but you can't outrun a train. I get what? Running your, your uh, adoptive father to the hospital at super speed? This is somehow fucking beyond you? And anyway, so... And, and again, I could maybe overlook that, except, again, later in the movie, he flies faster than fucking light. Anyway, so... All of this is a roundabout way of saying that, you know, here there's a there's a reason for, for I don't know, Clark's absence, I guess, that he basically lost the two minutes he would have needed to save Jonathan. And it works for me in that he's not weak. He's not ineffective. It's just that his eagerness, his commitment to do what's right, ultimately resulted in the death of his father when he could have been able to do something about it. And... That is ultimately really heartbreaking. So anyway, you can agree or disagree with that, but no, actually, I was, I was really enjoying listening because that's that's an insight into this I hadn't quite gotten. But yeah, that really does work. Um, of course, I mean, they do spell out that Clark couldn't be there for his dad's death, and the whole point of this issue is that you know the from this point of view, future Superman, the Superman who's dying, gets a chance to come back in time and see his his parents and his life one more time before having to, having to shuffle off this mortal coil. So that seems to be the, the point of this particular chapter. But this chapter I really, really do enjoy, even though – no, not even though. For the stuff we've already talked about, plus some of the Grant Morrisonisms, bringing in the sort of off-the-wall characters that he does with the the Super Mixius Pitalik and the – the future Superman, Cal Kent, and the, the, what we think is the unknown Superman of 4500 AD, but turns out to be Superman himself. Right. <clears throat> and, yeah, that's another thing. And, honestly, the the uh, Chronovore is another, is another just – I don't even want to say Silver Age. This is just a very Grant Morrison type of concept to me mm-hmm. that – I don't know. It just it, – it works, and you could never – I don't know if you could get by with the same type of thing in a outside of uh, this type of story and but the idea like you said a you know a superman of the fifth dimension the uh, 
I guess call him Supermixes Piddly because I don't know how the fuck to pronounce that name, but um, it's just. And this is just I mean, to me. This is God. This is just so m- mythic, you know. And mm-hmm. you don't. You just don't get this anyplace else. And anyway, so but you actually raised a point that I hadn't really considered that maybe the unknown Superman that we see in this issue is the Superman that we saw at the end of issue number five, where, or for all intents and purposes, the issue, the same Superman from the end of issue number five. This is what he does next. Go back in time to just say goodbye uh, to his dad. And the one thing he wasn't able to do in life, or not the one thing, but certainly one of the things he was not able to do in life, he's able to put right before, for all he knows, he meets his own maker. And it just, it's it's powerful. It really is. I'm not the kind to usually cry over comics, and this one's not, this one's no exception. I mean, my eyes are perfectly dry, but it is a very, a very powerful moment. And it, there's another weird bit of business here that we haven't talked about. There are actually three Kal-El's in this issue. There, there is, is Teenage Clark, I assume current day Superman, the unknown Superman of uh, 4500 right. AD. And then we see the sun god Superman at the very end uh, when when a present day Superman asks, which of my descendants are you? He, he doesn't even says, ha. Yeah, he doesn't even answer. He's like, oh, I still haven't learned, have I? <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, wow, that honestly never even hit me until right now. That's, that's a, if, if, assuming I'm right, that's, that's actually really powerful. <laughs> that's cool. Now, um, I don't know how much you're going to be able to speak to this because I'm not sure how much you read. Mm-hmm. But Grant Morrison has said mm-hmm. that whenever he was writing New 52 action comics, he was really just trying to tell the younger days of the same Superman he'd always been writing. Really? Yes. So while some 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 artistic trappings like the the makeup of the suit and everything else are a little bit different, I think Grant Morrison was basically trying to tell this is the story of that Superman when he's younger. Hmm. It's kind of like the um, the Batman Incorporated storyline that was happening and, and the New Fifty Two transition happened like halfway through it. Mm-hmm. That didn't really affect the story that much. There were some minor elements that he could no longer continue. Because those didn't exist in the new continuity anymore. But for all intents and purposes, the story just kept on trucking. Um, anyways, so in Grant Morrison's 18-issue run on Action Comics, it ended up being one big Mixius Pidlick story. Really? And there is this idea he brings into play that Mixius Pidlick has this cyclical existence where um, he uh, he marries his princess that he had all through the Silver Age, and they have five children that are five aspects of him, and one of those aspects uh, ends up being uh, evil, and but then they all come back together and become Mixius Pidlick again. And it, it's too much to go into, but I would like to ask Grant Morrison, okay, how does this super person of Mixius Pidlick nature fit in with that idea. 
and I don't really have an answer for it. If there's someone in listener land who has thought about this, I would love to hear thoughts on it. But, um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's a question I have. I do too, actually. That's, I, let me, I'm, look, I'm not going to front you and say that I knew, but I had freaking no idea really, but, um, that I would like to know the answer to that myself. If I could just toot my own horn for a second, listen right ahead, to yeah. the action comics episodes of New 52 Adventures of Superman. Because uh, we go through and, and we we cover the entire run. And, our, and when we went on hiatus, which we thought was the end of the show, we didn't know I was going to come back later. But we made sure to get through the end of the Grant Morrison run on action comics. And the coverage of that last issue is our last episode. And... Um, so we have questions as we go along that we're not sure about because we're reading the issues as they come out. But at the end of it all, we kind of feel like we have a grasp and we we kind of get our minds around it all. But yeah, it's it ends up being a big Mixes Pidlick story in ways that aren't very clear as you're going along because it's Grant Morrison. But um, I, I'm very curious to know how this element ties into that. I am too, actually. Um, a few other bits of business here. Uh Clark ends up giving the eulogy at, at Jonathan's funeral. I've kind of got mixed feelings about it, I guess. The fact that he's doing it or what he says? What he says. Okay. Everything he says are, look, those things are, you know, really sweet, uh, touching things to say about his, about his father. Obviously, he loved him. But where I come from, eulogies are really supposed to be about the deceased and Clark spent a goodly bit of his eulogy really talking about himself and it's okay for uh, Clark to grieve I mean he has feelings just like the rest of us it's a big thing for him that his father the only father he's ever known is dead especially mm-hmm. when He's not morally responsible for it, but his own actions prevented him from from saving him, right? That's something that Clark would take very seriously. He'd probably carry that around with him for the rest of his life, and that's all powerful stuff. But at the end of the day, these things are supposed to be about the the deceased, and Clark spends a good bit of his eulogy primarily talking about himself and that just kind of bothers me. So anyway, I, maybe you've got a different angle on it that'll help me. Well, if I could present a counterpoint to that, I he is saying what he's learned from Jonathan. Right. And so talking about how someone's life has impacted you is, is something that I certainly think people feel the need to do whenever they've lost someone. Um, uh, on, on the other, at the same time, this definitely reinforces the opinion that Superman got everything that makes him Superman from Jonathan Kent. Right. And I, I love that idea. I think that idea is great. I don't think that idea is an untouchable element of the mythos <clears throat> man of steel. <clears throat> right. So, um, <laughs> Whenever they play with that idea in other incarnations of Superman, I am okay with that. It does not bother me. Because ultimately, the Silver and Bronze Age Superman, 
we only see Clark, we only see Jonathan Kent's impact on him through Superboy stories. And those stories are never about the Kent's parenting Superboy. Those are about Superboy doing Superboy things. And um, the, the idea of the Kent's having to parent him is always treated with comedy because if they try to spank Superboy, they're going to break their hand and all this other stuff. And Superboy already knows what the fuck to do because he's Superboy and he's, he's known what to do from the, from the womb, I guess. So, um, you know, okay. So Clark learned how to be Superman from his father. That's good. I like that. It's not necessarily always have to be true. Well, right, and I get that, but I mean, ultimately, the Kents need to do need to be there to do something more than just give him a last name, you know. Mm-hmm. And you know, I guess one of the things that I've kind of come to resent about Superman the movie is it it was so reductive of the uh, of the Kents, Jonathan in particular, that basically. Theirs was a boarding house for intergalactic messiahs who were basically waiting until their 18th birthday to undergo 12 years of Kryptonian brainwashing, (laughs) after which then and only then could they really become Superman, right? And that kind of bothers me. I mean, the Kents are there, and they need to bring something to the table of value. And to me, how and when to use his powers. It doesn't necessarily have to be that, because I think Smallville as a TV show makes a very fucking powerful argument that Clark already knows what he should and should not use his powers to do. He doesn't need the Kents to tell him that. No, he, he and Jonathan disagree on the specifics all the blessed time, but they agree on the idea. Right. And so what... What the Kents are ultimately there to do is teach him how to be a man, how to how to function in the world without them. And my view, God, I'm really getting off off track here, but my view is that in in Smallville, what you could what you could say is that for a good bit of that show's run, Clark had taken a lot of the wrong lessons from from the Kents. He didn't. He didn't completely grasp what they were trying to t- what they were trying to teach him as far as being an adult, but he did ultimately get there. He, you know, the idea of uh, the 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 idea of the Kents being the architects of Clark's moral universe works for me too. Basically, as long as they do something, right? And and again, mm-hmm. I mean, I I realize I've kind of picked on you know Superman the movie a few times. Basically, once he becomes Superman, I really don't have a whole lot of problems with that movie up until the time travel ending. You know, so there's a good hour and a half-ish stretch of that movie where I've got really nothing negative to say. But the setup and then the finale kind of bother me because of what they say about Superman's character, you know? And maybe that's another podcast for another day. But anyway, that's just the way I feel about it. And certainly Jonathan's depiction here as being sort of uh, Clark's... In in Smallville, uh, Jonathan is Clark's hero. He's the guy that Clark wants to be. Here, he's more... He really is the the guy's father. They don't really... They relate to each other more as father and son as opposed to the friends of sorts that they were in Smallville. And honestly, 
like I said, I don't think there's a wrong way to do it so long as the Kents contribute something of value, and I'm rambling. So anyway, you have the floor, sir. No, I'm good. Um, I don't really have a whole lot else to say on this particular issue. Um, they they bring they they reinforce the idea of the twelve labors that joining forces with three generations of Superman to chain the carnivore was another one of the uh, labors. And I was thinking to myself, okay, so what are the actual twelve labors? And I found the list online. So as we go through the rest of our conversation, I'm going to mention them. So just just to 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 say so far, uh, saving the first manned mission to the sun was number one. Brewing the super elixir was number two, and answering the unanswerable question with the Pharaoh God in the lowest lane um, superpowers issue was number three. Chaining the chronovore was number four. So we have four of the twelve labors so far. Right, and you know it's kind of funny since now's as good a time as any to. Um get into that. I, I forget the specifics of what Grant Morrison actually said on the subject, but what I remember is that the 12 labors themselves really weren't supposed to be uh, important. I mean, it's basically... The individual labors, right. But yeah, they're basically little bits of myth that have popped up around somebody that honestly, in, in just day-to-day life, that person might not have really attached all that much importance to but became important to people you know later on you know uh for instance how i don't and now i'm kind of blanking on something i can compare it to i was about to say uh uh, benjamin franklin flying the kite but i don't even know if that story is even fucking true but um there's god it's it's because it's late really is that's that's the problem here but there's got to be something some historical moment that we all look back on now in the present day in somebody else's life, some figure from history where we ascribe a lot of importance to that. But at the time it was just something they did. Yeah. It was just a day in the life, you know, and it only became important. Okay. All right. Well, I don't, maybe this isn't the best comparison, but damn it. It's the best I can got. I, I can get with a, uh, with fighting against a cold at almost midnight here. Paul McCartney writing yesterday, right? At the time, I think it was just another song, you know? Right. I don't think he necessarily thought of it as, well, here's my next number one hit, or here's something I'm going to win a Grammy for, or whatever. He, he was just writing a song. And as far as I know, there wasn't any particular heartbreak behind that. He just felt like he was just in a certain mood, and he felt like writing a song about getting dumped, even though really there was no inspiration behind that song. But we remember that as one of the great Beatles songs there ever was. I don't necessarily know that he would have that view of the song himself, you know, as far as as that level of importance. Make sense? Yeah. Well, and, you know, when we have the 12 labors of Superman, we can't help but, you know, draw a line with the 12 labors of Hercules. And the Hercules myth, he sets out to do 12 awesome things. Right. And so what you're saying is that Grant Morrison was not thinking along those lines here. It's just that Superman did 12 things that were later considered his 12 awesome labors. Right, exactly. And so, yeah, I, I can see that. I mean, like usually in the morning, whenever I drop a deuce, I just see it's just another deuce that I've dropped. Right. I, what I don't realize is that in the future that one of those deuces has actually saved humanity. I didn't even know it. Right. Or maybe they just look back at it and say, you know what? 
of all the of all the people who have ever lived and of all the deuces they ever dropped, none were as epic as the as the deuce that John M. Wilson dropped on the morning of April the twenty sixth, twenty fourteen. That was the deuce to end all deuces. It had a more epic ending than Lord of the Rings. It, like you thought it was over four times, but it kept on going. Right. And then it had the twin, you know, the, the fifteen minutes of credits afterwards. Yeah, those are the kind of deuces I do. Right. And uh, anyway, so honestly, uh, what John and I originally talked about was doing all twelve issues of uh, All Star Superman in one go. I'm gonna change the rules on them though midstream because we are now in our third hour. <laughs> and we're only halfway through through the series, so do the math here. So what I'm going to do, uh, if it's all right with John, is actually pull the plug on this a little bit early. And uh, I, I won't say that I, I secretly laughed at you whenever you said doing this whole thing in one episode. But, you know, I, I was willing to go with it. I, I <laughs> right. Well, it's just a, I honestly thought that we could do it. I thought, you know what? I don't have so much to say about this book that I couldn't wrap it all up in two hours. There's just no fucking way. Well, now, we're only halfway through it, and we're in our third hour, so I guess what a liar I turned out to be. But you know what? For a story as big as this and with as many ideas as this story has, and also, and also just for as, just as, as informative as this series has become for me about what Superman is, you know, this... This mythic aspirational figure. He's not one of us. We want. We, he's somebody that we should want to be like. You know, I don't think we're meant to identify with him in the same way that we do with, you know, Stan Lee characters. I just don't think it, he's meant to work that way. And this story, I think, does a very good job of illustrating all of that. Literally, mm -hmm. it brings all of that to uh, to the to the fore. And I, maybe I was just an idiot for thinking that it would be this easy. So. Anyway, what do you what do you think? Yeah, I'm good. Um, we can come back another time and, and wrap up the uh, not wrap up, but you know continue on our journey through the story. Um, I'll be honest, and and maybe this is more appropriate for closing comments next time. But um, I first time I read this didn't see why this was considered such a huge Superman story. Mm -hmm. But it's it's only through my second reread and especially through our conversation through here that I can see why this is so highly favored. It's not necessarily because of the story that's being told, but because of all the kinds of things that are being brought to the table for the story, if that makes sense. Right. Basically, the ideas. Right. Okay. All right. This, no. is, this, is, this is a pretty huge fucking story uh, um, as far as – the scope of it, not, not the point of it, but the scope of it. Right. Anyways. And I, and, and you know, my view of it is that there are fans out there who get off on it. And I think whether they can articulate it or not, they probably enjoy it for the same reasons that we do. I tend to make a distinction between them. And I guess you could, the civilians who gravitate to any kind of iconoclastic story that brings Superman to his knees. That's one of the reasons I think that whatever happened to the man of tomorrow is kind of, it, it's so well favored by the snooterati fucking hipster critic elite, basically the New York times book crowd that it's a story that basically repudiates everything that Superman is supposed to stand for. And that, I think, is why they, they're drawn to it, because they, they've never been inspired by Superman in the first place. But the entire point of this story 
is not only for to show what an aspirational figure Superman is, but for him to inspire you. And I don't know that they see that. What I think they see is yet another story where Superman dies and he's basically defeated. And I don't really, number one, I don't think that's a, that, that's a reasonable interpretation of what this story really is. But number two, I think it tends to lose sight of this story's intended purpose. You know, it's not just another story where Superman dies or gives up or, or is brought low or, or in some other way, basically where the story ends. All right. It's, there's more to it than that. And I, anyway. and really that could be said about all three of the major death of Superman stories that have happened over the years, the 1961 version, the 1993 and four or not two and three version. And then this version, the death of the character is not the point of the story. It's everything that happens before and after that, that makes the story what it is. Right. Right. Well, anyway, so, uh, that's basically it for us this time. Um, now, uh, John, uh, could you do me a favor and just uh, uh, talk to us a little bit about what exactly the new 52 Superman Adventures is all about? Just in ca- or, Geez, I am tired. Wow. The new 52 Adventures of Superman. My apologies. All right. Uh, just, uh, and also Avengers Inspirations. I mean, you know, what's the deal with those? And, also, okay, so- and where can people find them? That's the new 52 Adventures of Superman is a show that I, uh, I started up back whenever the new 52 was new. Um, and I had a couple friends with me, Michael Kaiser, who is a big fan of Superman and Batman. And I had J. David Weider, who uh, wears his Superman fandom on his sleeve or just underneath it on his tattoo. Um, and so we started, you know, looking at the issues of uh, Superman that were coming out as they came out. And we were covering all the issues, all the series, and any uh, cameo appearances that we could find. Um, and eventually we had to bring that to a close because of just stuff getting in the way. And a few months later, relatively recently, I decided to revive it as a solo show with occasional guest spots um, looking at the stories as they hit in published trades. So instead of doing a month of issues of all the various titles, I am doing a story arc. In an episode, and so that has been fun. Um, I'm a. Uh, I really like to enjoy. Uh, I'm sorry. I really like to analyze continuity. I like to see how things fit together, how storylines work. Um, so, and, and I try to be entertaining as I do it. So that's that. We're looking at the new 52 stories of Superman. Um, and to be honest, I've had a lot of people say that they would not be enjoying the new 52 Superman if not for my show. So oh, wow. I feel pretty, pretty uh, uh, flattered by that. Um, That's high praise right there. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't take it lightly. I just I, I bring it here to say, go listen to my show. <laughs> <laughs> well, and they the, should. People should. So that's at new 52 superman com, and there's a facebook page if you search new 52 adventures of superman also if you just search podcasts on itunes and type in new 52 i'm the only one that shows up and that's why i named it that way so avengers inspirations is a show that i'm doing with my daughter lily she is 12 and she is awesome and i have raised her on comics to be a comic book nerd and um last year we decided to start taking a look at the comics that feature the characters that are in the marvel cinematic universe so um thor hulk Iron Man, Captain America, the Avengers teams. Uh, we each episode take an issue or two, depending on if, if the story takes the full issue or not. 
and we just kind of walk through it, talk about the story and uh, talk about what's awesome and what's not and poke fun at things that are, you know, 1960s silly because, you know, as much as um, Trent and I have sort of lauded the praises of the Silver Age, there's also a lot to be poked at too. So (laughs) we do that as we go along and uh, that's just, that's a, a fun show that I really, really enjoy doing with her. Um, when is this episode dropping? Is it after mid June? Oh, long after mid June, believe me. Okay. And also I have uh, started up as a summer project. I'm going to be doing this at least for a year because it's my year of star Wars. Um, the star Wars saga cast is over at the star Wars saga cast.com. And there each episode, usually for about 20 or 30 minutes, um, sometimes longer, but usually for that length, I take a look at some element of the Star Wars universe. Um, I've been walking through the Marvel Comics series, but I'm also thinking about doing some more new, uh, newer stuff, some of the 90s uh, comics and novels. And since Disney has bought the license and they're going to be doing their own thing, I'm really tempted to just kind of talk about that stuff as it drops. So the Star Wars Saga cast is where I just like to talk about things that are Star Wars. And um, it's it's a lot of fun over there. So that's just me doing Star Warsy things there. And yeah, I guess the only other thing I haven't mentioned is because I hardly ever put an episode out, but technically it's still going. Golden Age Superman at goldenageSuperman.lipson.com, where I have been looking at the early adventures of the Man of Steel. And there are some 30 odd episodes out over there for you to uh, listen to and send me your emails about if you enjoy them or not. Right, yeah, and I've actually uh, played your promo uh, for that show a few times, and I felt reasonably confident doing it because it does seem like, you know, you do get new episodes out on a fairly... I guess basically what I'm saying is nobody wants to feel like the jerk in the room who airs a bunch of promos for defunct podcasts, right? So, (laughs) uh, yeah, so that's... There's really no ending to that, so I'm just going to say Juicy Cheeseburger. Bye, everybody. I'll see you next week. Okay. (laughs) And we are out. What's wrong, Star Wars fans? Disney. Disney killed the expanded universe. They killed the whole thing. It's dead. Every single book. Not just the novels, but the comics. And the video games, too. It's like they're just stories, and Disney threw them out like stories. I hate them! Star Wars fans, relax. Here, have a Snickers. No one destroyed your Star Wars Expanded Universe. In fact, I'm going to give you a whole new opportunity to go back and explore all those books and comics that have helped to shape and mold this universe we love so much. Join me on the Star Wars Saga Cast, 
where I'll be walking through the various branches of the Star Wars Expanded Universe, much of it for my very first time. I'll be bringing you short episodes that review comics, longer episodes that explore the novels, and in-film commentaries, because you know you're just dying to hear what some random guy on the internet has to say about movies that you've seen a hundred times before. You know you are. So come along for the Star Wars SagaCast at thestarwarssagacast.com. It started in November 2010, when one guy decided it was time to show the denizens of the internet that there was more to Superman's adventures from the 70s and early 80s than Alan Moore and Kryptonite Nevermore. Now, three and a half years later, that mission continues. This is Superman in the Bronze Age. My name is Charlie Niemeyer, and every week I shine the spotlight on this long-overlooked era on Superman in the Bronze Age. Join in the fun at www.supermaninthebronzeage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. The Vietnam War, a conflict that changed America. Of those who served, many came back irrevocably changed, while many did not come back at all. This is their story. Marvel Comics presents The Nom. Join me, Tom Paneris, for In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics series The Nom. Each episode, I will recap and review one issue of the series as well as provide historical context that's important to understanding the events behind the story. Along the way, I will also take a look at the movies, music, and literature surrounding the Vietnam War. New episodes are posted every two weeks at incountry.podomatic.com. You can find show notes and other media at popcultureaffidavit.com. So I think that's just about the end of that. 
Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S M-A-G-N-U-S Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play, Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus punches reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsecor of Milan, Italy.